Romanov had it stripped by Coleman. And now Anderson from Montreal. Goes the puck ahead. Has Caulfield cutting for the net. Caulfield off his stick. And then Anderson scores! Hey now. Hey, 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 hey now. Hey now. Hey now. Welcome to season 11, episode 14 of the Sportscasters podcast. My name is Steve Bennett coming to you from my spare bedroom at my house at 1420. Well, maybe I shouldn't give out all that information. At my house in Buffalo, New York, north, the northern suburbs of Buffalo, New York, North Tonawanda. I come to you with episode 14 pretty sh- quickly after episode 13. I want to thank the guests on that show, Jimmy Traina. Jimmy Traina made his uh, season 11 debut, someone who's been coming on the podcast since season one. It was great to have Jimmy on. And then a brand new guest, Pete Croato, who wrote the book From, Prime, from Hang Time to Prime Time, uh, was on the podcast as well, you can check out that episode in our archives, uh, soundcloud.com slash sports-casters, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Surely, wherever you found this, you'll find that, and I appreciate you doing so. I appreciate everyone who reaches out at email, the sportscasters at gmail.com, or on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Uh, I love chatting with the listeners there. Uh, that's always a good time. Uh, my good buddy on there, uh, Grapevine, just the main man, Grapevine, uh, which I know is my buddy Fred, will uh, email or uh, Twitter me, hit me on the Twitter on there, and I always love chatting with him. He actually found one of the most valuable tools I've found in doing this in 10 years is a website called podfollow.com, which is a great way to share your links because it's not specific to Apple or Spotify. And it will really help the user who clicks on it go to the place where they want to go to hear a podcast. Uh, So I got to thank Fred for finding that for me. But please reach out uh, and let me know what you think of the shows. I think that season 11 has been one of the best and it gets even better today. Kenny Albert. Kenny Albert, of course, is from was from NBC Sports Network for hockey. He's going to go to TNT for that. He's still NBA, NBC Sports for the Olympics. He'll call them in a couple weeks. Uh, also, of course, the NFL on Fox. He'll be back for another year there with Jonathan Vilma. And he's one of my favorite guests, one of the nicest dudes in sports media. Anytime I call his name, anytime I put the bat phone out for Kenny, he answers it and gives me all the time I need and answers the questions. Uh, His famous father, Marv Albert, retired. We're going to talk to him about that. Talk to him about his very first Stanley Cup as the main play-by-play guy on television in the United States. We'll talk to him about that. Uh, Just a really great interview with Kenny. 
We got some Pavel Bure stories in there. Uh, we're all over the place. It was a joy to do it. I can't wait for you to hear it, and we'll do that next. Uh, also on the podcast today is a debut. And you know I love debuts. We had one last week. We have one again today. Uh, his name is Brian Raftery. Raftery. Brian Raftery. <laughs> just like uh, just like um, the basketball announcer, Bill Raftery. It's Brian Raftery. Uh, and uh, his father was Bill as well. Um, but a different bill. Uh, but Brian wrote a book a few years ago that I remember noticing uh, called The Best Movie Year Ever or something like that. And it was about how 1999 was the best year for movies. And I almost reached out. I don't know why I didn't. But a few days ago, I was scrolling. And I, I saw this this ad for a new Ringer podcast that was going to be on Spotify. And it was going to be called... Uh, it was about Siskel and Ebert. And I absolutely love Siskel and Ebert. Their appearances on Howard Stern were legendary back in the day. And I love uh, love those guys. So right away I looked up Brian and I said, hey, I know you got this thing. Would you come on? And he checked with the powers of B, got the clearance, and we recorded the interview a few days later. And uh, he was nice enough to get me a little piece of the podcast, which actually is out today. So this is going up on July 20th, and so is the first episode of uh, his Siskel and Ebert podcast. But I got a little sneak preview so I could hear a little bit, see where he was going with it. It also gave me a chance to read part of his book, which we talk about, and he's got some great pieces he's done for GQ, including a long one on Cheers. And uh, we didn't quite get into that because we kind of ran out of time, but I know I'll have Brian back. I thought we had a really good chemistry. It's a great debut. Um, and it was so much fun talking uh, Stern, old old Stern show appearances with him for Siskel and Ebert and just kind of the impact of Siskel and Ebert and movies in general and all that. And I just loved having him on. So that's the show for today. We'll update the book club again. You know, we were going to, with the interview with Pete last week, kind of back off from the book club for the rest of the summer. Uh, but instead, I added four books. Uh, so we'll go over those four books again. And I have ones to give away. Um, so I'll give out some information how you can uh, get that book if you're interested in the book club update. And then we'll uh, we'll do one last thing again today uh, to sign off. I know last week uh, was a tribute to my friend Calvin who passed away. And I appreciate anyone who listened to that and, and hung in there and reached out and emailed me and thanked me for that or was affected by that. I heard from a lot of listeners uh, who enjoyed that one last thing. I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, so we'll do something a little bit more upbeat this time. You know, I'm still riding this European championship high, if I'm going to be honest. I watch videos, reaction videos, uh, YouTube videos, the game itself, every day since it's happened. Um, and I was telling my brothers, you know, I think I want all my favorite sports teams to be like the Azuri. You know, they come around every two years. They're already in the playoffs when they when they show up. Uh, they compete for the title. Sometimes they win. Sometimes they don't. If they win, it's a really high high. If they lose, meh, soccer anyway. You know? It's like, it's just perfect. It's a great month when they're here. The games are every few days. The games are on. The games are off. They're in and out. Man. 
you know, the Saints will always be the Saints. You know, they're always going to be my number one passion. They're always going to be this huge part of my identity. They're always going to be the one of the main things people think of when they think of me. And I could never imagine like a Saints game being on and me not watching it. You know, I just can't imagine that. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe for a few reasons, but not many. I couldn't imagine just like being home and be like, ah, I'm not going to watch the game today. I just couldn't imagine that. Or like following updates on Twitter to take a nap. I just, no, the Saints will always be the Saints. Um, and I always like baseball a little bit more than I like the Braves. And I think I have the Sooners at the appropriate distance to be able to enjoy them. See, the thing with the Oklahoma Sooners, especially football, is there was this point that I got almost as into Sooners football as I was Saints. But I just couldn't handle that level of emotional investment on both days of the weekend. And I had to give one up, and it wasn't going to be the Saints. So I had to kind of take a step back from Sooners football. Uh, I still watch their games if they're on. Uh, if they start to lose, I just shut them off. You know, I don't get involved in a lot of the noise. Um, I try to just make Sooners football a joy in my life. And uh, if it's not fun, I bail instantly. The second I'm not having fun watching them, I'm out. Which is not always the case with the Saints. And then the Sabres are just like completely dead to me right now. You know, um, they're about to sell off Jack Eichel for 50 cents on the dollar. They're going to make a trade they can't win. There's no reason to make this trade. Um, it's ridiculous. They're ridiculous. I just can't even be bothered to have any emotion. It almost feels like an abusive relationship with someone in my family who's like hopelessly addicted to drugs. And I just got to kind of say, all right, you go, you do your thing. Pray to God you don't pass. But if you do, I understand. Uh, if you can clean yourself up and, you know, become a member of society, you're welcome back to Thanksgiving dinner, but I'm never going to trust you around the fancy silverware again. That's just kind of where I am with them. You know, clean yourself up, rehabilitate, maybe get to the playoffs, maybe, you know, then call me. Until then, I don't know. So I think today, if I'm ranking my favorite sports teams, uh, it's New Orleans Saints number one, uh, the Italian national team number two, Oklahoma Sooners football number three, Braves baseball number four, and Buffalo Sabres a distant number five. Um, so that's where I'm at with that. All right. We talked a lot last week. I'm kind of mush mouth tonight. I'm all over the place. You guys are probably thinking, how has he done a podcast for 10 years uh, with a mush mouth like that? What an absolute disaster of a human being uh, Steve is. Why am I listening to this? And I hope the answer to that is because he does great interviews with people like Kenny Albert. So let's get to that. Uh, let me stop ruining it the way I am right now. I hear podcast players clicking off across the country as I babble through this intro. So we'll take a break and we'll be right back with the great Kenny Albert.
one last time we bring our next guest into the show with the NHL on NBC theme. Uh, next year it'll be at TNT or the NFL on Fox or all the other great places my next guest calls games. He's one of my favorite guests, one of the nicest guys in making in a ridiculous amount of appearances. I've lost track how many, but he's always been great and loyal, and I love having him on. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Kenny Albert. Hey, Kenny, what's up? How you doing today? I'm great, Steve. How are you? I'm pretty good. The star of the 2021 NHL playoffs on the podcast right here, Kenny Albert. How'd it feel? What? Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Let me, let me back up my hyperbole maybe a little bit. Let me ask you this. Um... Did it mean a lot to you to call a Stanley Cup final game on NBC? Like, was this was this a bucket list? Was this a goal checked off? Was this a dream come true? Like, what did it mean to you to be the guy to get to call the Stanley Cup, all the games, not just on NBC Sports, but then eventually, what was it, two through five, I guess, or three through five, three, four, and five on NBC? Um, I know I was thrilled for you. What was it like? What, what did you feel? How did you feel about it? Well, I, I agree with uh, all of the above, everything you just said, Steve. Okay. It was so exciting to be a part of it. I have done uh, the Stanley Cup final on the radio prior yep. on uh, Westwood One and NHL Radio and uh, in 2014 for MSG Radio. But uh, to call the Stanley Cup on TV and have all of the eyes on uh, your broadcasts, um, it really was uh, a lifelong dream. Uh, I thought back to watching the Stanley Cup final as a kid uh, throughout my youth, and then um, you know during my professional years, as I mentioned, uh, having the opportunity to call the Cup final on radio on a number of occasions. But this year, obviously, was a little bit different, given that uh, there weren't many fans in the building in Montreal, and. During the final series, uh, those of us who were traveling back and forth between the U.S. and Canada were in uh, somewhat of a quarantine bubble situation, but it, it was great. I wouldn't have traded it in for anything. Uh, terrific partners in Eddie Olchek, Brian Boucher, and Pierre Maguire, and uh, to follow and try and fill the try and fill the shoes of, of the great Doc Emmerich. And I did receive a couple of nice texts from Doc. Uh, throughout the series so uh, as you alluded to yes definitely uh, a lifelong dream bucket list whatever you want to call it was there any ever concern as Mo as Montreal got closer to winning the conference that you would have to call the games in Montreal from Stanford or from wherever or was did you always know you'd be able to under a certain set of restrictions be able to go to Montreal during the cup if they made it we we did hear uh, probably around the end of the second round uh, that we would be traveling if that were the case. And in round three, in the semifinal round, uh, John Forslund, Joe Micheletti, and Pierre uh, did travel to Montreal for the Vegas-Montreal series. So we found out pretty early on in the playoffs that if that were the case, we would be traveling. Uh, we weren't sure exactly what the protocol uh, would be as far as the quarantine, the the, the semi-bubble. Um, it, it was interesting, Steve. We did the Tampa Bay Islanders series, the other semifinal right. series. So that ended on a Friday night with Game 7 down in Tampa, the one nothing victory for the Lightning. And then Saturday, it was business as usual. We sat out at the pool in Tampa. Uh, we had a nice dinner at a restaurant that night. But then once uh, Sunday came and the Canadians traveled in, 
and the TV and radio folks from Montreal uh, traveled in to Tampa, uh, that's the day everything changed, and we could no longer uh, go to restaurants. We could no longer sit out at the pool. We had to pretty much stay in our hotel rooms. They had a couple of areas we were allowed to go to in the hotel. Uh, we could go to the arena for practice. We could walk to the arena in Tampa. In Montreal, we had to take a bus. Um, but as I said uh, on a number of occasions to folks, um, it, it, you know, if I were given the opportunity to call the Stanley Cup final, uh, but I couldn't go to a couple of restaurants or spend time at the pool, I think I would take that trade off 100 sure. out of 100 times, for sure. Yeah, for sure. The, you mentioned... Game seven, and I mean, you got a wasn't the best cup final, obviously, but it was an unbelievable conference final. You got to call definitely the better of the two, and really an all time Eastern Conference final. And it just when you were mentioning it, you made me think of just an incredible night. And I don't know if this is something where you call your dad or your dad calls you after or what, but I think I tweeted about it. The game that the Islanders won on the defenseman making the save in the crease, so that happens. Um, on Long Island, you make an incredible call in the moment. You kill it. Great call. Incredible moment. Fast forward 15, 20 minutes later, and your dad in Brooklyn calls the Kevin Durant three-point buzzer beater. To, I don't know if it was forced overtime or second overtime, whatever was the case. But just two, a father and son separated by a few miles in the same city making two incredible calls and two incredible sports moments in the same night. I took notice. I don't know if it's something you thought of that night, if you and your dad ever talked about it, reflect on it. What, what about that night and those two calls and that co- the, the series of coincidences kind of lined them up? Well, it was pretty cool. and there, there have been a number of occasions the last seven or eight years where I might be calling one conference final uh, on NBCSN, and he would be working an NBA conference final on TNT. And, you know, I check out social media sometimes after the game, and uh, there would be a number of comments on there about the fact that we were both doing these games simultaneously. Um, during that round, it was, uh, it was so neat because both series involved New York teams, as you mentioned, the right. Islanders and the Brooklyn Nets. So uh, there was a lot of focus in our home area on both series and – on several occasions, the games were played on the same night. Um, that game in particular, uh, when uh, Ryan Pollock blocked the shot from Ryan McDonough to win the game, game four, and now saw Coliseum, I got play. in my car and actually listened to the end of that basketball game on the radio yeah. and heard about the Durant shot and, and the overtime. So uh, it was it was, it was was uh, pretty cool, you know, especially given the fact that um, he retired following the next round, right. following the Eastern Conference Final. Uh, but to get back to the original uh, question, um, the Stanley Cup Final, it ended in five. I thought it was, it was, it was a pretty exciting series for a five-game series. Uh, had a good overtime game most in there. Of, right? really, most of the games yep. were close. We had yep. the overtime game four. Tampa was obviously the better team. Yeah. Uh, Montreal finished 18th during the regular season. They had a tremendous run during the first three rounds, but uh, it was obvious that Tampa Bay was the better team in the final. Um, you referenced the Tampa Bay Islanders series, which was a great series, aside from Game 5, the 8 nothing game. But uh, to be honest, Steve, the, the second-round series that I called with, with Eddie and Brian, uh, Colorado and Vegas, uh, that was – I would put that right up there with, with the Islanders-Tampa Bay series. That was unbelievable hockey. It was How about the, that McKinnon goal? Teams that – 
two teams that finished tied during the regular season with 82 points, best record in the league. Yeah. Colorado blew them out in game one. Vegas had been coming oh. off the seven-game series against Minnesota. They had to travel. They only had the one day in between, and Colorado was well-rested. And Colorado's six minutes away from taking a 3 nothing lead in that series. Yeah. And Vegas comes back and wins game three and then uh, takes the next three as well. But that, that series, for a second-round series, that, that could have been a conference final or a Stanley Cup final as well. Yeah, it reminded me with those two years the Sabres are actually good when they, they basically ran into Ottawa in the one year it was the second round. Second, they, they were the two best teams in the conference both years. You know, and, and, and one year the Sabres got Ottawa and the next year Ottawa got the Sabres. But, um, yeah, what a goal by McKinnon um, in that game one where it was like Pavel Bure level speed with the puck on his stick blowing by everyone. It must have been unbelievable to see in person. And then the other thought is, this is the second year in a row, it seems like Colorado was going to win the cup until they weren't. And then they were just out. Like, like it seems like they, the last, and two years ago, you could say, oh, they had an injury at their goalie. Makes sense. I don't know. I don't understand that team. Like, was there anyone who didn't think they were going to win the cup after game one against Vegas? And then. You know what? I, I was at, I was at both those series in person, uh, the Colorado Vegas series yeah. and the Colorado Dallas series in the bubble last August or September. And I had the same thought. They look like by far the best team in hockey uh, after game one against Vegas. And you figured, uh, you know, Colorado-Tampa, that would be a great series in the final. Uh, Last year, uh, Colorado, I think the injuries really were a big part of it And a goalie, they didn't have a second goalie, yeah. Yeah, they were down to the third goalie in Hutchinson who battled and played well, but Grubauer and Franzos both got hurt. They lost Eric Johnson last year. They had a number of other injuries. Some of their depth players, I remember Matt Calvert was out. So they, they were really you know down to the bare bones last year and wound up losing to Dallas. But you're right. I mean, the last two years, it looked like Colorado uh, could very well go on to win the Cup, and they lose in the second round both years. And similar, Vegas, in the, in the third round, both last year and this year, um, after getting past the first two rounds, you figured, wow, they look like the best team in the league, and then they wind up losing to Dallas last year and to Montreal this year. Yeah. So uh, when, when Montreal reached the final, you know, a lot of us were saying, you wonder what Toronto, Colorado, and Vegas are thinking right now because right. Especially uh, they, they, would have had a, they would have had a golden opportunity. But uh, that's why they play the games. It doesn't always happen as you think it will when you look at it on paper. Now, that's why it's as depressing as it is to have a team who hasn't made the tournament in 10 years. Because, I mean, in those 10 years, it's been proven over and over again. Like, just get in and see what happens, right? I mean. Right. You know, we've seen The Kings win a cup as an eight. Yeah, the Kings. Right. We've seen some other uh, seven and eight seeds uh, advance pretty far. And look at Montreal this year. As I mentioned, 18th in the regular season. They had fewer points than than two teams that didn't even make the playoffs this year. So Right. The worst team in the worst division. Once you get in, hot Price was brilliant over the first three rounds. They won a bunch of overtime games. So anything can happen. Yeah, the worst playoff team in the worst division, I should say. Um, yeah, wild, it was a wild playoff, you know, a weird year. You know, for me, probably my least favorite NHL season ever. You know, my team was never competitive. There was a bunch of games with empty buildings. You know, never got super into the playoffs. So I'm not, I'm not disappointed, you know, for that season to be gone. But still, like, there's things you're going to take from it. Like, you know, get in the tournament, being the number one thing because – you never know what, what can happen in the NHL playoffs, and that's why we love them so much. We talk- and, and it's hard to yeah. believe, as we speak in late July, 
Uh, it's hard to believe that one year ago today they had not even started up the bubble. That's uh, following crazy. the 2019-20 yeah. season. So yeah. in less than a year, the NHL, you have to give them the credit, they've gotten through two full Stanley Cup playoffs, and uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning won the Cup twice in under 10 months. But they started the bubble August 1st last year, completed the playoffs, uh, played a 56-game regular season, and then completed a full playoff once again. And safely, right? And without a lot of controversy, really, you know? Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Sabres shut down, the Canucks shut down, but and they had they did have that ridiculous scenario where Vancouver and Calgary were for some reason still playing games while the playoffs are going on. But other than that, which is right, you know, it's funny. I <laughs> which remember, is a nitpick, but I remember beginning the 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 first round of the playoffs and looking at some statistics from the regular season and where teams ranked on the on the power play and the penalty kill and where players ranked in certain categories. And that all changed over the next couple of days because right. <laughs> uh, Vancouver and Calgary were still playing regular season games. And you're like, yeah, I thought they were 13th in the power play. Why are they 14th now? Probably. Right. The numbers uh, did change around a little bit. You might, uh, I, I got I to gotta ask you because I'd be horrible at this if I didn't. And I know that sometimes it, it seems like, at least from my position, it's not the number one thing you want to talk about with me. But your dad did end one of the greatest careers in the history of broadcasting. Um, and I... I guess I just got to I just wonder what your thoughts are about it. Like, have you had any time to think about maybe his his place in um sport? I mean, he's obviously a Mount Rush. I mean, he's the greatest basketball. Let's start there, right? The greatest basketball play-by-play guy in the history of the business. And his career ended and and there's a lot more to the story. I, I just figured we start with that, but as his son, how do you feel about it? His career ending, the the fact that he's not going to be doing it anymore, it, what how how has it been for you? How have you thought about it? What are your thoughts about your dad ending an unbelievable career? Well, I never thought he would even utter the word retirement, let alone retire. But he surprised he you. Really happy, really happy, really at peace with his decision. Uh, turned eighty back in June. Um, you know, I, I, he was I think so happy that he was able to call games during the playoffs with fans in the building sure. because during the regular season as so many of us did in, in a number of sports. He called games off monitors, and you know that was certainly out of the comfort zone for everybody. So it was great that he was able to get back into the arena, uh, first for the NBA All-Star game, and then for the three rounds of the playoffs, uh, culminating with the Milwaukee-Atlanta Eastern Conference Finals. So uh, there were a number of, uh, you know, some documentaries and, and some highlight shows uh, that, that uh, various networks uh, put together as the series was winding down. So it was a lot of fun to watch some of those and go back down memory lane. But uh, he's really, like I said, happy with the decision. Uh, There was a terrific dinner uh, that I was able to attend because the Stanley Cup final ended in five games. It was actually the night after the Lightning won the Cup. So I was able to get back to New York for that dinner. Many of the folks who were instrumental in his career, some of the network executives and other broadcasters were on hand. So that was a lot of fun. Unbelievable! What a career! I mean, geez, Marv Albert, unbelievable! I can't. It's crazy. And you know, yeah, go ahead. You know, the, the younger generation really only knows him from basketball, from uh, the NBA on Turner over the last two decades. Um, if you watch the Last Dance on ESPN last summer, the the Chicago Bulls documentary, so many of his calls from oh yeah uh, the NBA and NBC from the nineties, but uh, did NHL hockey for thirty years with the Rangers. Um, NFL football for about 20 or 25 years, both on TV and radio. 
boxing, uh, baseball pregame show on NBC, Olympics. So um, uh, the, the local news, 6 and 11 o'clock news in New York back in the 70s and 80s. So um, although the younger generation is only familiar with the NBA work, uh, was involved in so many different sports through the years. Well, for me, growing up in Buffalo, I remember him being the voice of many of those Bills playoff games, you know, on the right. run. Right. And sometimes... In fact, his partner for a long time on NBC was Paul McGuire. Right. Yep. Who was yep. so associated with the Bills in the city of Buffalo. Yeah, and I, sometimes I'll go back and watch the opens of those 90s playoff games, ASC, NFC, on uh, YouTube. And, you know, I can just think of your... I, I think of so many of them. I can picture your dad... You know, it all bundled up at Rich Stadium on a cold day in January, you know, getting ready to call a Bills playoff game here. And then the other thing I always think of, too, is his call of the Rangers winning the Cup in, you know, in 94. I That's an interesting one because I can remember Gary Thorne's call of it. I can remember your dad's, and I can remember Sam Rosen's. You know, for some reason, a lot of them got around the different broadcasts. Uh, venues of that game and I can recall all the calls of it and I, I remember his um, so yeah I mean at least for me I, I mean I'm 40 so I'm not quite the younger generation but by any means but um, yeah those those football games here in the 90s I, I'll, I'll never forget his voice as being a part of those for sure no you're right uh, worked NFL and NBC probably from the late 70s until the mid 90s so uh, during the Bills glory years uh, he was up there. Do you remember uh, definitely on a, num- a number of occasions calling big games? Do you remember have a memory of a game or an event that he was calling and you were there, and something significant happened, or maybe just a memory about being with him and being part of the journey with him? Is there anything like that for you? Well, aside from so many Knicks and Rangers games through the years, um, the Dream Team in Barcelona in '92. Okay, um, I kept stats for him throughout my high school and college years. By 92, I already was working professionally. I had finished up two seasons with the Baltimore Skipjacks of the American Hockey League. Yes. And I was about to begin my first year as an NHL broadcaster with the Washington Capitals. But um, I always joked, I came out of retirement as a statistician <laughs> and tagged <laughs> along and, and worked those dream team games yeah. with him uh, in Barcelona in 92. You know who's got an, I, I don't. You've probably read it, the Jack McCollum book about the dream team. Oh, it's so good. Um, you know, when I think back, and, and we didn't have cell phones back then, no uh, camera phones, but I did have a, uh, a, a, you know, an old-fashioned camera with me. And when I was watching the Last Dance documentary last year, I pulled out some of those photo albums, but I had a front-row seat to what was uh, thought of then and still to this day is the greatest basketball team in history. When you think yeah, back what a to the squad. Hall of Famers that yeah. comprised the roster of that team, and I had the opportunity to watch it from the front row. I mean, everyone on the team was a Hall of Famer except for Leitner, but he's a college basketball Hall of Famer and did have it. Right, he was the only college player on the team. And he did have it. I'm pretty sure good... everybody else was in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, and but he did. I mean, he wasn't a Hall of Famer like the other guys, but he, he was probably the greatest college basketball player of all time. I know in, in like, in retrospect, it's like, oh, it should have been Shaq. Well, no, in the moment, doing what they wanted to do, it absolutely should have been Leitner, you know, because he was the guy who had won the two titles and four Final Fours or whatever it was, all, you know, everything. He accomplished in college. That's another great book. Gene Wojciechowski's the last, the last great game about that Duke and uh, it's a Kentucky game uh, where he, right, him and Grant Hill. You, uh, you probably couldn't go wrong with either of them on that Olympic team. Later, didn't get much playing time. He would come in at the end of blowouts, but 
um, great opportunity for him to at least yeah. uh, be a part of the dream. And I think I remember reading in Jack's book that like it was all part of the negotiation of getting to the pros. Like at first there was going to be maybe half and half, and then they're like, no, we'll do three college players. Then eventually they settled on one. I think if I remember that right. Um, that's and that's that was sweet, after though. the. Uh, the U.S. team was upset, coached by John Thompson back in 88 in the Seoul Olympics. Right, which, which is kind of the, the impetus to it. Which right? led to yeah. the professionals uh, playing in 92. Yeah, which it would be interesting to see if they're not upset. <laughs> is there? I don't know what's going on with the team this year, but hopefully they uh, can right the ship by the time the, um, the, the, the... I feel like they will. Doesn't everyone kind of feel like they will? But who knows, right? I don't know. They've lost a few exhibitions. Well, I know they have, a, they have yeah. a couple of players still playing in the finals yep. who are scheduled to... Uh, be a part of the U.S. Olympic team uh, with Drew Holiday and Devin Booker. So I guess they'll be hustling over to Tokyo as soon as the final series ends. Yeah. Wild. Let me ask Let me ask you a couple more things and I'll let you go. We mentioned it earlier, calling games off the monitors. And I know in New York, um, John Sterling and Susan Waltman are kind of leading the charge of like, this is ridiculous, get us out of here. The, a couple of weeks ago, I know Sterling had a mistake where he called a home run that was a um, – that was a uh, – highlight and he and he said like look at like i looked away there's a home run I'm, I'm calling off a monitor you know like there was a uh, gary thorne this weekend in new york as well um struggled a little bit trying to call off the monitor um what about explain this to me like why is it so hard i think with hockey i understood a little bit like both referees aren't always in the screen you might not know when there's a delayed penalty you might not know when the goalie's out you know like i i why is baseball so hard? Why, in general, is it so hard? What are your thoughts about calling games on a monitor? And are you just anxious as someone in the uh, profession as well for it to just be over? Like, will it just be pets for everyone if it's just over? Like, is it that bad? Well, it's always better to be in the arena or the stadium because you're looking at the ice, the court, the field. Um, I did call probably 40 to 50 games off monitors this year. Uh, mostly hockey, a little bit of basketball. It is challenging. I felt like I could see about 85% of what I normally would if I were at the game. Uh, the exact scenarios you mentioned, uh, not seeing when the goalie's pulled, not seeing the referee who's off the screen calling a penalty, uh, not seeing what's going on at the bench area, uh, those, are, those are definitely issues. Um, I've never called a baseball game off a monitor, although I will be next week. I'll be calling two Olympic uh, baseball games uh, involving Team USA off a monitor from Stanford, Connecticut. So uh, that'll be the first time uh, that I'll call baseball off a monitor. Um, like I said, it's challenging um, for obvious reasons. That's what we had to do over the last year and a half sure. uh, due to protocol and to cut down on travel and for health and safety reasons. Um, I could see exactly why that would happen to John Sterling, and it's not his fault. Uh, sometimes you do have to look down to read a promo, right. to look at a note or a statistic. And he looked back up, and they were showing a highlight of a home run from the prior night. So I learned early on um, doing hockey and basketball off the monitor this year that you really can't look down very often. Obviously, you have to once in a while, but it was important to keep my eyes on the monitor. Uh, sometimes I was able to delay two or three seconds if I wasn't sure exactly uh, whether a penalty was going to be called or who it was going to be called against. Um, the bottom line is the fans listening at home, they don't care where you are. They don't care if you're in a studio right. or if you're at the game. They just want uh, to be able to 
listen or, or you know, listen to the best broadcast or watch the best telecast that you could possibly bring to them. So, um, like I said, it was challenging, but we all understood that we had to do it that way. And uh, for the most part, you'd rather be in the building, in the arena. Uh, we did basketball games at MSG this year from about 15 or 20 rows up instead of the usual courtside seat. And it wasn't bad. It was a bit of an adjustment. Um, it was strange working games in empty arenas at the start of the season. But uh, come playoff time, it was great to have the fans back in the building, and it was as close to the you know normal, regular atmosphere that we had gotten used to prior. So we'll see where it goes from here. Um, I know baseball teams, many announced crews are still calling the away games out of a studio. Not sure exactly what's going to happen once hockey and basketball start up again. Uh, we even did, Brian Boucher and I did four Florida-Tampa Bay games in the first round of the playoffs out of the studio in Stanford. Wow. Yeah, and I, I guess that. the biggest compliment, biggest compliment that we got was uh, from viewers who thought we were at the game. Sure. They couldn't tell that we yeah. weren't there. So that, that was a big compliment. Um, but for the most part, uh, the other first-round games we worked, and then from the second round on, we were live in the arena. Yeah, it, it, I, I felt bad for, like, Doc last year, you know, especially with it being his last series. It seemed like sometimes during the final he struggled a little bit with the monitor, a little bit behind the play, things like that. You you just wish I someone, mean, I thought, yeah, I yeah. thought overall, overall he did, he did his fine, regular, but, yeah. you know, usual terrific job. But you there were a couple perfect. of times where you could tell way out. that maybe he was a second or two behind. But, he, you know, for those of us who have done play-by-play, it's incredible that he – called the Stanley Cup final from his house. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, did an unbelievable job, as he usually does. Um, he was in his house. Uh, Eddie and Bush and Pierre were in Edmonton. So, you know, technologically they set it up so that he would not have a delay of more than a half second or so. Uh, so overall, uh, you would have to give him an A-plus yeah, for the job he did, given yeah. that he was not in the arena. Yeah, I didn't mean it to be, like, critical of him. I was more like, you know... No, no, for I the didn't last, think he did. Yeah, for the last series, you just want it to be everything he might have dreamed right. of. You know, right, it's whatever. unfortunate that yeah. he had to go out with his final series. Exactly. Uh, calling play-by-play from his house. Well, the last the last series ever for NBC, well, for now, at least. I shouldn't say forever. You never know. Uh, for now, as the partner of the NHL was this one, and it's going to be a new era pretty much starting this week. You know, the expansion draft i don't know if you call it an unveiling or the draft how you would describe what it is but it's on espn 2 i believe this week and um it's going to be split between espn and tnt and um you know i think as hockey fans we kind of all know we've seen the coverage before on espn we got at least some idea in our head of what it might be and they might reimagine it in some way that'll be awesome and great but i think a lot of hockey fans are really excited about tnt and what they might bring to the game and you know, the idea that there might be a studio show that somehow rivals the incredible Inside the NBA show that they had. And I just think it's incredibly fitting, you know, with your dad kind of leaving the job as the main man there, that you're kind of walking in now as the main man on the hockey side. I'm excited that you got that one, maybe as opposed to the ESPN one. Is there anything you can tell me that you're willing to give up about how what the what went down, what the process was behind the scenes, how you ended up there? Did you ever consider ESPN? Did they ever consider you? Did you always know it was TNT? Like, what was the process here while all this is going on? You're calling your first cup and all that, and the announcement comes out. You're going to be the the head play-by-play guy at TNT. Like, what what was the process there? What anything you want to share? What you don't, I understand, but I gotta ask. You know. Well, first of all, before I get to that, 
yeah. Steve. Um, I have to just, I know I'm biased, but NBC for 16 years did such an unbelievable Incredible. job of presenting, presenting hockey in the United States. Yep, With I agree. over 80 or 90 games on in the regular season, uh, they were the first U.S. network to put every playoff game on. Prior to NBC, yep. the big you events. wouldn't see every playoff game. You yep. would see certain games. Um, the implementation of the inside the glass position by Sam Flood and Pierre uh, 16 years ago, that has led to, I would say, at least 50 jobs around the hockey world. Sure. We do it here. Most teams, yeah, we do it here. Most teams and most networks in the U.S. and Canada now use an analyst inside the glass. So just think how many jobs that created. Yeah. Um, NBC was heavily involved in Winter Classic, uh, the, the Winter Classic, yep. the Stadium Series, the outdoor games, which have uh, led to you know, millions and millions of dollars in revenue for the league and the teams, and it's such a great event for the fans. Um, and, of course, to have the great Doc Emmerich for the first 15 years and analysts, uh, including Eddie and Boosh and Pierre and Joe Micheletti and Keith Jones right on down the line. So when, when the history books are written, um, NBC the perfect did a remarkable partner, job. The perfect partner at the perfect time for the NHL and yeah, I think exactly. for NBC. And yep. moving forward... Um, ESPN, which which had hockey up until uh, 2004, and as you mentioned, Turner. And I'm very proud, along with Eddie, uh, to be a part of the Turner team. It was sort of a whirlwind uh, when I think back in late April and early May uh, when I found out that I would be calling the final, and then the next week is when uh, it was announced that Turner would join ESPN as the other national broadcast partner. So it really was a whirlwind. Um, I wish I can give you some kind of a great story, but... Um, it all came together pretty quickly, uh, involving the executives of Turner and agents and a number of us, uh, you know, myself and Eddie uh, over at Turner and Brian Boucher and, and some of the others heading to ESPN. So it really did happen pretty quickly. I wasn't privy to all the stuff that went on behind the scenes. So uh, there's no crazy story out there for me to share, but uh, just so proud to be a part of it moving forward. Uh, we all know what a great job Turner's done with both yeah. the NBA and Major League Baseball, and you mentioned the the pregame show inside the NBA with Shaq and Charles Barkley and Kenny Smith and Ernie Johnson and the tremendous job that they do. So uh, there's still a lot of uh, a lot of unknown, you know, as far as the schedule and which nights of the week. And I know the NHL is going to announce a schedule, I think, sometime over the next week. Um, so you know, real curious to hear about uh, where and when we're going to open. Um, Turner will have the the First three rounds of the playoffs this year, ESPN gets the Stanley Cup final in 2022, and then we'll have it with Turner in 2023 every other year. Um, if I'm not mistaken, ESPN has the All-Star game, but Turner has the Winter Classic. Um, yeah, it's a lot you know, of like, Olympic, we get this, we get that, we get this. could be an Olympic break this yeah. year, which, right. which you know, we're still waiting to hear if the NHL players are going to oh, I hope uh, so. take part in the Olympics. So there should be a lot of excitement coming up over the next year, and Wayne Gretzky's a part of the studio team, so that's obviously exciting for all of us. So, do you know um, Wayne? Do again, you know him? NBC did an unbelievable job for the last sixteen, and uh, moving forward, at least for the next seven, uh, it's Turner and ESPN carrying the mantle. Yeah, you know Wayne. You must know him from New York from the Ranger days, right? Do you, have you met him or no? I do. Uh, yeah. He spent three years with the Rangers. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was uh, in my early years doing radio, and uh, he's a terrific guy. Obviously, the greatest player of all time. Um, it was a lot of fun to be around him, you know, on a limited basis from 96 through 99. Um, Wayne isn't the biggest fan of flying. That's been well documented. Right. So on many of the team charter flights, 
uh, he would come up towards the front uh, where where the broadcasters and trainers would sit at that time, and uh, he would he would uh, chat with John Davidson, and uh, they had so much respect for each other, and uh, the rest of us who were on these flights, you know, we would sort of be like the flies on the wall listening into the conversation, but. Wayne was so knowledgeable, not only about hockey, he followed all sports. I used to joke that he could host a sports talk show if he wanted to, and uh, now we'll get to hear him on a semi-regular basis on the Turner studio show. Yeah, I think that's really good for hockey. I had Al Strachan on, I think that's how you say his last name, um, who was kind of like the guy that Wayne trusted in the new, in the in the print media, kind of in the same way that like Mike Francesa trusted Neil Best. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I know it's kind of a nerdy reference that maybe not a lot of people get, but um, yeah, it was. Al yeah, Strachan was a terrific yeah. uh, hockey writer up in Toronto for yeah. many, many years. Yeah, I had him on. He had wrote, wrote a book about the the insiders thing they did on Hockey Night in Canada. But um, I, I think I said to him, just like I feel like as time goes on, we're kind of not appreciating Wayne enough. I don't think you know, as Ovechkin's kind of chased him down, as the game has changed, as he's been involved last. So I think it's going to be great. For him to have an on-screen role again, for sure. I, I, I can't believe I never asked you in all these times this question. Because I think you know that I'm the world's biggest Pavel Bure fan. Do you have a Pavel Bure story from his time in New York at all? Is there anything you can tell me about Pavel Bure? I'm always searching for good Bure content. So, I, I have two that come to mind. All right, great. Um, I want them both. I'm greedy. Go now, ahead. I, I, I guess you'll be excited by these two stories. Oh, so I'm yeah. not sure how excited... How excited the listeners might be. Doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> he did spend a brief time in New York, and mm-hmm. I, I didn't know him really well. I didn't know him well, but um, he was, you know, I was doing the radio when he was with the team, so, uh, you know, he, there would be facial recognition. He knew I was part of the broadcast crew. I, I remember when the Rangers acquired uh, Boris Miranov, the defenseman uh, who had played for a number of teams around the league. Sure. And there was a discrepancy. His brother, Dimitri, uh, one of them pronounced it Moranov, and the other one pronounced it Miranov. And I remember a bunch <laughs> of us were around Pavel Bure the day the trade was made up at practice. And he was actually making fun of the fact that the brothers, we asked him, how, how does he, you know, which, how would you pronounce their last name? And he laughed. He was kind of making fun of the fact that the two brothers pronounced the names differently, that one was Miranov and one was Moranov. Um, my other Pavel Bure story, and, of course, he played against the Rangers in the 94 final. Yes. Um, was stopped on the penalty shot by Mike Richter. And yes. You probably don't remember my call, Steve, but I, I actually called that series on NHL radio, believe oh, it or not. I'd love uh, to hear with it. With Sherry Ross, uh, all seven games. Um, so that, that was my first Bure story, the Miranoff pronunciation. Sure. Uh, the second one, in 2002, um, no, I, it was 2006, actually, in Torino, Italy. It was my second Olympics. Okay. Uh, I called hockey at the 2002 in Salt Lake and then 2006. And Joe Micheletti and I would, would go to practices uh, prior to the start of the Olympics. And then once the games got going, we had two games every day, so you couldn't really get to team practices. So we would try and do all our research uh, beforehand. And, you know, back then there wasn't as much information available on the Internet and, and yep. from other sources. So we, we really tried to attend as many practices as we could. And... Uh, I remember Joe and I attended a, a, a Russia practice um, in Torino in, in, a, in a small rink uh, in downtown Torino, Italy. And, you know, it wasn't very organized back then. Um, we didn't necessarily have access to the locker room during the Olympics. Uh, our credentials would only allow us into the broadcast booth area. 
But we somehow, we were waiting for a ride back to the hotel, and we, we saw Pavel Bure walk out of the rink, and he was either waiting for a team bus or some other mode of transportation. And he wound up, you know, he recognized Joe and I, and he knew that we were working for NBC, and he could not have been more gracious. He spent about 20 minutes with us. I think he was one of the general managers. He was the GM of that of the team, Russian yeah. Olympic team. Yep, he put the team yeah, together. 2006. Yeah. And he spent time with us and, and, you know, talked about his team and gave us some background information. It was mostly NHL players. We were familiar with the players, right. but he helped us out with the line combinations and with some other information that we otherwise might not have had. So, you know, that was my other story, just, just spending those 20 or so minutes with him outside this rink in Torino, Italy, uh, where he shared some information about the Russian Olympic hockey team with us. I think I recall that team. He was so important because the players at the time in Russia, the politics of it is the players are kind of split up by what I don't remember. But there was like two different camps. But one thing that all the players agreed on is that Pavel Bure was their hero when they were a kid. So right. Like, that, yeah. Yeah. No, so absolutely. like he you pulled just, everyone the respect into that, they that all had team. For him. Yep. And no one's going to say no to Bure if he called, you know. But if it was, you know, maybe some other political figure in the Russian Hockey Federation at the time, there would have been some no's. So I remember that's right, why. Right. I, was, I mean, I'd have to look back and see who was on that team. Yeah. But you're absolutely right about, yeah. as far as uh, the respect that the, the entire team had for Bure. I don't know if you remember Pete Radchuk, but he was a first rounder of the Avalanche, played with the Panthers. Then his brother, yep. Mike Radchuk, won the national championship at Michigan State was a Flyers pick, I think, never quite, I don't think made it. But anyway, he was on the Panthers when Bray was there, and I was working at a nice rink in Buffalo, and he was coaching a hockey school, and I caught up with him, and I knew he was working the school, and I knew he played with Bray. I'm like, oh, I got to see if I can get a Bray story out of him. So I asked him, I'm like, do you have any good Bray stories? He's like, oh, I do have one. He's like, we were uh, playing the Rangers at the Garden, and he's like, and where we stayed at the Garden, he's like, the boys would walk to the rink. And I was... Um, it was one of my first road trips, and someone played a prank on me, whatever. I got down to the lobby late, and everyone had already left to walk across. So I didn't have to walk alone. But the only person left in the lobby was Bure. But Bure didn't walk over. I guess he was too famous or whatever. He would take a get a car. Or take They were taking a taxi, whatever, over. So Bure's like, oh, you come with me. You ride in taxi with me. So he took him in the taxi, and then they got there, and they were going to he was going to pay or whatever. And Bray says, no, no, I pay. I signed for 30 million today. The reason, <laughs> the reason Bray was late to get to the rink was because he was finishing his contract extension or whatever it was at the time. Oh, nice. Yeah. So Ratchet got a free, free car ride out of the Bray signing. Well, if you, if you haven't listened to it yet, <laughs> um, sometime during the pandemic last year, uh, the great Mike Russo up in Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, did a podcast w- with, uh, Val Bray, Pavel's brother. Sure. And he told some tremendous stories uh, about his career. They played together in Florida about uh, Pavel's career. So if you haven't heard that one yet, you might want to check it out. I had Roy McGregor on here, and he was telling me that I asked him for a Bray story. And he's like, I saw Bray play the greatest game i ever seen a forward play in the 98 Olympics. And I'm like, oh, yeah, five goals against Finland. Unbelievable. I mean, those three breakaway goals, especially the last one where he blows by Teppo Newman and was like one of the best skaters in the world at the time. And, I mean, he leaves him just like twirling around at the blue line like he'd never been on the ice before. But he's like, no, 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 it was the final. He's like, I know he didn't score, and I know they lost one nothing to Hashik, but he's like, i never seen anyone play so well in a game or whatever. I don't know his exact words, but 
It was actually the final time. No, there was a game. There yeah. was a game the Rangers played down in Florida, and I think John Muckler was the coach. He actually had Brian Leach play forward that game and shadow Bure the whole game. I believe it. Um, yeah. I don't remember the result or you know how many goals Bure may have scored if he if he scored any, but uh, there was actually one game where Brian Leach was sort of a rover forward uh, at, in a matchup situation with Bure. I think the two years he was in Florida when he got 58 and 59, I think, were the totals. Those No one else was getting 40. You know what I mean? Or maybe Yager got 40. You know, something like that. Like, it was, man, he was unbelievable. Scoring unbelievable goals in a time where no one was scoring goals. You know, during the fallout of the Devils left-wing lock or trap stuff, you know, all that. I mean, man. Yeah, I, I mean, can... when you think about McDavid and McKinnon now, they just look faster than everybody. Yep, everybody and that's else. how Burry was. That's, that's kind of how Burry looked yeah. back then. I try to explain that to, like, my neighbor's kid. You know, geez, he doesn't know who Bray is at all, and I'm just like, yeah, I'm on YouTube watching old highlights because it's really the speed. The thing that is always, I think, the best about Bray, and maybe the same with McDavid, is how fast they go when they have the puck. You know what I mean? Because they just go at it. I mean, they're going so fast. Their sticks are moving so fast. Their feet, you can't even think they could process it that fast. And I mean, sometimes No, you're right. I'd, I'd have to look it up, but. I think the first 10 games he played with the Rangers, he had unbelievable statistics. He had a lot of hat-tricks for the Rangers. He, he suffered an injury. Yeah. He just was playing on a line with Mike York and Theo Fleury at the time. And they put up tremendous numbers those first 10 games or so, and uh, then the injury issue started to kick in. Yeah, I mean, his knee, at any time I see a tweet like, what athlete would you want to be healthy his whole career? I always pick Burry. You know, because he's top five of all time in NHL in goals per game. Like him and Mike Bossy are the two guys who, if they would have played full careers without injuries, would have close to as many goals as Gretzky. You know what I mean? Um, so, anyway, a lot lot off the path there. But talking to Kenny Albert, at Kenny Albert on Twitter, of course. Are you getting ready for football? Are you going to do any big – I was thinking before I called you on, thinking of times you've been on. You came on. I was gracious enough as a host to talk about that dreadful Saints 49ers playoff game you called. And that disastrous, first of all, Alex Smith somehow scoring a 30-yard bootleg touchdown. And then Vernon Davis making a career highlight. I had you on the day after that we talked. And then also the Batista bat flip game. You were on after that. You were at that game, which was on one of the great home runs of all time. I watch it on YouTube like three times a year. Um, what's coming up for you? Football on Fox, I assume, again, you think you'll get any baseball players? Like, what's in the next few months for you between now and when I have you on again, Olympics, you said, what else getting ready for TNT well, Olympics coming up yep. um, Olympics up in Stanford, Connecticut, uh, handling volleyball and some baseball, as I mentioned, um, most likely no major league baseball this summer, only uh, due to the fact that, uh, you know, the hockey playoffs the last two years, sure. uh, you know, went well into the summer. So that, that took priority both last year in the bubble. And then uh, this year with the playoffs going through uh, early July. So, uh, Olympic volleyball and baseball, and then uh, a couple of weeks off, and we'll get ready for football. I do the preseason for Washington along with Joe Theismann, so we'll have three games, and then uh, the NFL and Fox regular season with uh, one of your former favorites from the Saints, Jonathan Vilma. Oh, second, yeah, you guys did great second together Second season together, so looking forward to uh, working with JV once again. Yeah, you got to help me get Vilma. I might have to put in a favor there. Um the, I think I might be able to help with that one. The Rangers, I don't ask for favors much, but I'm going to have to do that. Uh, the, the Rangers, Bure, 0-1, 0-2, 12 games, 12 goals, 8 assists, 
20 points. Wow. Then the next year, only got 39 games. Obviously, on the last leg with the knee, 19 goals, 11 assists, and 30 points on one leg the last year with the Rangers. So, I mean, overall, that's what, 40, 50, 51 games, and he scored two, 30 goals. More than 30 goals. Wow. Yeah, that first year, like I said, was something special to watch. And yeah. then and they just didn't make the playoffs, the, uh, unfortunately. Injury issues kicked in. Yeah, the second year. All right, Kenny, I'm looking forward to all that stuff you mentioned. Vilma, second season with him. Hopefully some good Saints games. What was There was one we were talking when I was texting you last year when you and Vilma were calling the game. Was it against Detroit? Or I'm trying to think what game it was last year. I know you guys had at least one or two Saints games that we. Talked. Yeah, we did. We yeah. had a couple last year. Um, you know the ones that, the ones that I remember uh, the most distinctly. Uh, the one that you mentioned, which I won't bring up, uh, <laughs> the postseason game back <laughs> or in game January of 2012. Right. And then uh, the game the, the Saints won. Yeah, oh nine. About six or seven years ago, the the 52-49 game. Oh, with Giants, Manning. Yeah. Where Breeze and Eli Manning combined for 13 touchdown passes, which tied an NFL record. So. Uh, that was another fun one that comes to mind. And the only reason Manning didn't have seven as well is because Breeze threw a pick six that wasn't his fault for one of their touchdowns. Right, right. It was, uh, I think it was Lance Moore went in his hands and then he basically volleyed it to the the Giants defender. But that's a legendary game. And yeah, of course you called that sad Saints playoff game, but you also called the ultimate Reggie Bush as a Saint game against the right, Cardinals. Right, the Arizona playoff game. Yeah, I mean, you know, whenever anyone asks me if Reggie Bush was a bust for the Saints, I say no. Listen. Go watch his game against the Cardinals in the playoffs, and we won a Super Bowl a couple weeks later. Like, I don't care about anything else, really. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, Kurt Warner took a beating in that game. Yes, yes, he did. Yes, he did. And Favre the next week. And uh, obviously, don't get me started on Bounty Gate, you know. And I'm sure Jonathan Vilma's talked to you about it, too, about how the commissioner said to him, you know, no, I don't think you had a bounty on Manning in the Super Bowl. And, you know, Jonathan Vilma said to him, why in the world would we have a bounty on Warner and Favre, and then not have one in the Super Bowl. So anyway, I'm glad all those players were cleared and vindicated of that nonsense. But um, you did call that game too. So uh, looking forward to the fall and everything else. Have fun with the Olympics, and hopefully I'll see you in Jersey maybe this summer or soon. And uh, yeah, anything else? Any questions for me? Well, Steve, uh, really appreciate it. Always fun chatting with you. Uh, when you do get down to Jersey, uh, you know where to find me. So. Yeah. Uh, hopefully we'll finally meet in person later this summer. But as always, appreciate you having me on. It's uh, fun going down memory lane. All right. Thanks, Kenny. I appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. I was a little too tall. Could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering out. She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high, way up firm and high. Out past the cornfields when the woods got heavy. Out in the back seat of my '60 Chevy. I want to think. Kenny Albert for being on the podcast today. Man, I love Night Moves. 
Man, I love Bob Seger. You know, part of me just hopes that Bob Seger during the pandemic was like, you know what, I got to do at least one more tour. I doubt it'll happen, but I, I hope it does. I just love listening to that guy sing. He's got one of the great rock and roll voices of all time. And that's why I play that song every week to intro the book club. And we had talked a few weeks ago about how prime time, hang time to prime time was going to be the last book for the summer. And then I was going to take a little bit of a break from reading. And I wasn't going to add anything new to the fall. And then one night I got a little bit crazy and started poking around. And next thing you know, there are four new books as part of the book club. So let's go through all four of them now as I search for my Evernote app uh, on my iPhone 12. So this is what we got. Four books active right now. Two really active right now. And then two a little bit later in the summer. Uh, But the first one is called Tall Men, Short Shorts by Lee Montville. And I have the book in front of me here. Uh, two copies of it arrived. If you're interested in me sending you one, email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com, and I'll do that. The 1969 NBA Finals, Wilt, Russ, Lakers, the Celtics, and a very young sports rep- reporter. I've started to read it. It's part memoir and part uh, reporting about the 69 series, and it's a joy to read. And I can't wait to have Lee Montville on the show. I'll be honest. Uh, I have pursued this book because I wanted to do an interview with Lee Monville, who's never been on. Uh, that's why I picked this book, and that's why I did it. And uh, Elena at the Doubleday Publisher has been great, and uh, I'm going to interview him early next week, and he'll be on the next episode of the Sportscasters. The other book that's in the now... Oh, and by the way, Tall Men Short Shorts is available now. It came out June 13th. Uh, the other book is released August 10th, and it's by an author named Kent Babb. And it's called Across the River. And I was able to get a ebook copy of this. I haven't really started reading it yet because I've been reading uh, the Montville book. But um, it seems great. Life, death, and football in an American city. And the American city is New Orleans. And uh, it kind of reminds me, and it may be different when I read it, but it kind of reminds me a little bit of the S.L. Price book about high school football in El Quippa. Uh, I can't wait to read this one. Um, and uh, I'm excited to have Kent uh, on for the first time as well when he comes on. Uh, the books later in the summer, one comes out August 31st, one September 28th. Let's start with August 31st. It's called COVID Curveball by Tim Neverett, uh, a play-by-play guy for the Dodgers. And it's about the bubble and it's about the Dodgers title. And it's the third Dodgers book we'll have. Of course, we had Molly Knight's book, The Best Team Money Can Buy, which is a Sportscasters Book Club Book of the Year winner. Even though we don't do the Book of the Year anymore, when we did, uh, Molly Knight's book is one I picked because it's one of my favorite sports books of all time. And then we also had They Bleed Blue by Jason Turbo uh, last year, I believe. And now this year, COVID Curveball. We'll read that and talk to Tim Neverett about it. And then the last one, one of the great authors, sports authors, sports writers of all time. He was on episode six of the Sportscasters, and he was the he was the name that I felt really legitimized the show since he was the sports writer of the year at the time. And that's Joe Poznanski has a book called, coming out called The Baseball 100. 
that comes out on September 28th. I haven't heard the, seen the book yet, but I have heard from the publisher, and they said copies will be coming. I'm also working hard to try to get Out of the Pocket by Kirk Herbstreet. Love to have Kirk on if we can have him. Uh, and a few other books as well that are late, either later in the year. Some really good ones coming out in 2022. Uh, there's a Coach K book by Ian O'Connor in February of 2022. Uh, Howard Bryant has a Ricky Henderson book in May of 22. Mike Florio has a book coming out in March of 2022. And Jeff Perlman's Bo Jackson book, I assume will be coming in 2022 as well. So a lot of books on the radar. Uh, one last thing I wanted to mention, it's not exactly a book called Book of the Month, but every year uh, I try to feature and promote and sell as many copies of the Football Outsiders Almanac as I can. Uh, the Essential Guides to the 2021 NFL and College Football Seasons. It's available now either in digital formats or in paperback. You can buy the paperback on Amazon and you can buy the digital book right on the Football Outsiders website. Uh, in a couple weeks, Aaron Schatz will make his annual appearance on the show to promote the book. Uh, I'll ask him all kinds of questions about it and hopefully get you interested in buying one. But I love talking to Aaron every year, and I love Football Outsiders, and I love that book. And I love when the Saints are high on his metrics, um, and I'm disappointed when they're not. So uh, I look forward to talking to Aaron. So make sure you check out the Football Almanac. So. In the short term, I got to say one more time, Lee Montville, Tall Men, Short Shorts, the 1969 NBA Finals, Wilt Russ, the Lakers, Celtics, and a very young sports reporter. Uh, this is the next one on the docket. I'm going to finish reading it. I'm going to interview him early next week. And I do have a copy to give to you if you want one. Email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com, and I'll mail it to you at no expense, by the way. I don't ask for like shipping money or it's no strings attached. If I promise you a book, I mail it to you. I do ask that you stay on me in case I forget because I can forget sometimes to drag the book down to post office to get it out. But if I promise you, usually I will send it as long as you stay on me. So that's the book club today. Let's take a break and uh, let's come back with a guy who wrote a book last year called best movie year ever how 1999 blew up the big screen and his name is brian raftery and he's going to make his debut on the sportscasters podcast right after this Our next guest is making his first appearance on the Sportscasters today. He's from uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and a graduate of Penn State University. He wrote a book about movies in 1999 called Best Movie Year Ever. And he has a podcast series coming out about Siskel and Ebert on Spotify. And I can't wait to talk to him. About all of that today, a warm sportscasters welcome for the first time to Brian Raftery. Hey, Brian, welcome to the sportscasters. How are you doing today? I'm good, Steve. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited, really excited about a few things. First of all, I'm really excited to have you. It's great. Love doing debuts. You know, when you do something <laughs> for this is going, you know, ten years in. Anytime I can get someone <laughs> new, I love that. And also, 
I love Siskel and Ebert. And oh, cool. You know, I'm just so glad. I'm so glad. Not that you would be interested enough to do the project. I believe that there's people out there that would be interested. What I was really glad about is just that whether it was Ringer or Spotify or both or whoever the powers were that be that said, yes, let's do this. You know, let's invest in this in some meaningful way and provide this. I'm glad that they wanted to do it. You know what I mean? Because I guess there was just part of me that thought it was one of those things that I like. But if I pick my head up, more people would be like, wait, who? You know, like, because sometimes I feel like so many of the things I like can be a little bit niche. And my poor, I, here's what I mean. So this is a funny story about my daughter. I have a five-year-old daughter, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, we love, we, we, we watch 80s wrestling together. We love 80s wrestling, her and I. So, and she's got a bunch of um, figures that we got from like 80s toy stores and people's attics and wherever. And she knows who all the guys are. And I have a nephew that's six. And he was over one day and they're in her bedroom playing. And I guess they're playing with her wrestlers. And she comes running out. And I was talking to my mom on the couch. My wife was sitting there, maybe my brother. And she's like, she's like, Dad, Gregory doesn't even know who the British Bulldogs are. He doesn't know Macho Man. And guess what? He doesn't even know Hulk Hogan. And she goes running, <laughs> running away, and everyone's looking at me. And I just said, you know, yeah, I don't have the heart to tell her that she's the weird one in that situation yet. <laughs> you know, so I just feel like, you know, I'd be at a dinner party, and I'd be talking you know about Siskel and Ebert like this and there'd be someone who'd be like wait who you know so I'm just really excited about the project so let's start there for a second how did you pitch this you know was it hard to get it off the ground what about what are the origins and kind of it's it's making its way finally on July 20th um to Spotify and Ringer Podcast and and all that give me a little bit of the background and the origin story of the build-up to to just getting the approval to do it yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's funny because, you know, I have been, I, I mean, as a, to go back a bit, like, I grew up, like, obsessed with these guys. Like, I, I, I watched them, you know. So good. I grew up, yeah, and I grew up in the suburbs outside of Philadelphia, and I don't know when Siskel and Ebert aired exactly in Philadelphia. All I know is that, like, for about 10 years, I had this unspoken agreement with my parents that every Sunday morning, if I went to church and behaved, when I came back, I could watch Siskel and Ebert and Sinai Live. And I think I taped them. I may have taped them during the week, but I have, I mean, this was like my Sunday morning ritual was coming back from church. And I, cause I can still remember sitting there still in like my church clothes or CCD clothes, right. like yeah. watching Cisco Niebuhr talk about, you know, uh, RoboCop 2 or something like that. Um, so I've always been really interested in them. And I had all Roger Ebert's movie guides growing up and I grew up in a very kind of movie friendly house. So, talking about movies and reading about movies and that was all part of how I grew up and then you know and then I was very sad when Gene Siskel died in 1999 and I kept up with Roger and I, I interviewed him a couple times for things but you know I I really did not realize until I was working on this book a few years ago that Siskel and Ebert had kind of come back in a weird way like I was yeah he had a second I, partner right what was the guy's name well, yeah, he had Richard Roper. And I Roper. kept up with. Yep. I kept up. Yeah, and I kept up with him. Richard's great. I spoke with him for the podcast, and I I kept watching the show into the odds, and I think I did sort of drop out a little bit. But what surprised me a couple of years ago was I was I did this book on the movies of 1999, and I was researching 
I would just go down long rabbit holes of just, you know, I would, I would get a little sick of reporting or writing, and I'd be like, oh, let's go find, like, you know, I'd go find, um, you know, a Reddit thread on The Matrix or something from 1999. And I was surprised. I started going down these rabbit holes where I was realizing all these younger movie fans online were talking about older movies from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And a lot of times they would be arguing about them, and they'd say, okay, well, here's a fiscal Eber clip. Let's see what they said about it. And I was kind of shocked because I was thinking, you know, these guys hadn't reviewed a movie together since the late 90s. Why were people who were clearly teenagers or 20s still kind of turning to Siskel and Ebert? And that's when I realized that in the last few years, the number of Siskel and Ebert clips on YouTube has just blown up and, and to like a, a huge degree. I mean, there's, there's years upon years of episodes now available on YouTube or if you fish around certain sites. And I was kind of shocked at that point of how much kind of how, how much sort of sway they still have. But then it made sense when I started realizing that, wait a minute, half the podcast I listen to are two, you know, movie fans who get along but disagree about some stuff who are basically just sort of copying Siskel and Ebert's style. Right. Um, and I really thought for a while, and, and, you know, and I started rewatching these old clips, and I got really, really into them. And, um, you know, at first I sort of thought about this as a book, and maybe it still is at some point, but the fact is, it was the reason I thought of it as a podcast is because the audio of them discussing movies, you just you can't get that across in a book. I mean, there's nothing as fun as listening to them disagree or, or sometimes agree. You know, the back and forth, you, you, just, you have to be able to hear that. So, yeah, I went to, um, you know, I, I, I talked to Sean Fennessy at The Ringer about it, and he, I knew he and Amanda were Siskel and Ebert fans from the big picture because I could sense, you know, sense some of that same influence on them. And, you know, it was a pretty, it was a, in terms of getting a greenlit, it went, it went pretty smoothly. And then, you know, we got approved <laughs> and COVID happened. And so everything slowed down. So it's funny, yeah. it, it was supposed to come out um, a while ago, but we only finished it. I mean, we're still kind of tweaking it now, but we, it, we had this like, I had this sort of four month shutdown where I really couldn't work on the show that much, but I did spend four months watching basically every single Cisco <laughs> review interview that I could. And there's just so much out there now. And it's, it's like really, especially during COVID, it was so soothing to rewatch these guys. I mean, I, I you know, it's like, it, there's a nostalgia factor for me built in, but also they're, they were really smart and they, their conversations are so much fun to rewatch. Even if you never saw the movie they're talking about. I agree with everything you said. And you know, when I, I I'm a guy who, I've pretty much listened to Howard Stern every single day since 1992, just about. Oh wow! You know, give or take a day or two, and I don't, and I haven't listened to a new episode since around 2011. Really, you know, I've kind okay. of given up on what it is the show is, but it really doesn't matter because I have basically 30 years of shows um, that <laughs> I can listen to, and I still do every day. Not a day goes by I don't listen to Howard and. Um, I was always a fan of Siskel and Ebert, the show. It was on Weird Times, so I never exactly knew when or how to catch it um, growing up. But whenever I did, I sat there and watched it. And I remembered him being on Stern and enjoying it. And I remember um, when, Siskel, uh, when Siskel died, I remember the show that day and hearing Howard talk mm. about it. But it wasn't until maybe two years ago. I stumbled across the Siskel and Ebert on Stern clip pack mm. and I downloaded it. And for the next three days, listened to every appearance they had on Stern. And oh, my God. I mean, just the the relentless teasing, 
I mean, this. I mean, the way Howard would tease poor Roger about, first of all, his weight, and they would get into these arguments. And next thing you know, someone's going to buy a scale because right because he won't get on Howard's scale because he thinks it's rigged, and right and they're like fighting over how much weight he gained, and he's willing to concede he probably gained ten pounds, but Howard's pressing him on twenty. I mean, there's that. Then there's like when they'd actually get down to talking about the movies and you get like the Siskel and Ebert show on Howard with Howard and Robin, you know, and then also there's, I talked about the teasing. Well, Siskel was a willing participant, you know, so then you have him involved. I mean, it's just some of the best radio ever. Anyone who's listening, you can find it. And it made me jump back into the YouTube of these guys. You know, and I don't think I've watched an old movie in the last two years without watching the clip first, if I could find it. You know? Mm, oh, that's funny. I watch it I watch it afterward. That's my favorite thing to do is to watch an old movie and then I throw to Siskel and Ebert. And either way it's either way they really complement each other. Because um, I, I started like a year ago I started thinking, Okay, I'm gonna watch an old movie and then I'm gonna try to guess whether this is a Siskel movie or an Ebert movie and I always guess wrong. Like they 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 were very you know, they were very unpredictable in their taste, but their stern appearances were really, really oh, wild and legendary. really fun. And yeah, and they were such, you know, and they rolled with Howard because they were just, you know, that was they were two Chicago guys who had, you know, they had a they were newspaper guys and they were of Howard's generation about you know by a couple of years. But I, I do think that generation of media performers had a real built-in sense of sarcasm. <laughs> Yeah, they and were they, not afraid to bust to balls. They were not afraid. Yeah. You know, they would roll up their sleeves. I mean, he never walked out of there upset, and he could have. You know, also, oh, no, the f- right. yeah, yeah. Since Roger loved those appearances, I mean, Roger's having so much fun with those. And like Howard would rip on him because every time he's in, he's got another book. You know, how many books do you need? You know, oh my god, every time he's in, it's a it's a different book. And then that took me to finding his books. You know, digging books up yeah. of his. You know, reading those, like, it's just been such a, a jump off. And then it seems to me since then, and I'm going to ask you this, if you notice this, is it just not us? Like, is there, I think you kind of mentioned that they're having a renaissance in general. You found it on Reddit and things like that. It's like, I just, it seems like these guys just keep coming up. I read the John Wertheim book, Glory Days, that just came out. Mm. Uh, and the the Karate Kid chapter, which came out during the period he's taught. He, the book is about the summer of 84 and yeah, yeah. Uh, the karate kid as a chapter leads off with a Ebert quote from that. I was doing an interview a couple weeks ago with Jay Mariotti. You remember Jay Mariotti? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. my, oh my God. Wild. Right. And he's telling me this story. I mean, it's this interview. It's like one hour. I talk for maybe three minutes of the whole thing. And you're probably thinking, <laughs> you're probably thinking like, how is that possible? Uh, the way this is going so far. And, uh, cause I'm rambling. And, um, <laughs> At some point, he's, he's talking about leaving the paper in Chicago. He's like, Ebert called me a rat. And it just, it's like it's just like one part of this long sentence. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. Can we go back to Ebert calling you a rat? <laughs> and oh, my God. It's just like, I don't know. It's one of these guys are just seemingly everywhere, despite the fact that they've been gone for so long. I guess my point is just like. They left a mark. I mean, they really, really left a mark. You know what I mean? They're well, just... they were huge. Yeah. They were huge. I mean, that's the thing. People who maybe are younger don't realize, because we don't have huge movie critics now, especially not on TV. I mean, we 
there are a couple of people who are still recognizable who you know occasionally do stuff, but you know, Siskel and Ebert were on. You know, if you were to watch, I think their entire Letterman appearances are almost five hours all together. I mean, they did the Tonight Show. They were on the cover of magazines. They were on Saturday Night Live. I mean, they were on Saturday Night Live when they were still on PBS, when they were still kind of cult figures. You know, I mean, they and they were famous in a in a very big way for a very long time. And I think that's part of it. I think there is certainly a nostalgia for them now, and I think you know every sort of cultural phenomenon has this kind of, you know, boomerang thing where it comes back. But I think also they were just sort of the best at doing that. I mean, I think, you know, it's it, of talking about movies, and I think there is a real kind of joy into how honest they are about movies. Um, and at the same time, they're so entertaining. I mean, there's so many episodes of Siskel and Ebert where, you know, what would be maybe a 25-minute podcast conversation about one movie is just like a three-and-a-half-minute, incredibly smart, very quick cutting conversation because you know these two guys you know their shorthand um and you and you trust that they're being honest and, and i and i really i again i've watched hundreds of their reviews not once have i watched a review and thought uh eh, they're kind of they're kind of trying to fit in with the critical consensus at that time they're trying to you know they're being a little too nice they're being a little too harsh for some reason that's not on the screen i really do think that they have like a kind of bluntness that you don't really you don't really get so much sometimes in the big movie conversations where everyone's trying to be very mindful now, which I which I think is great in some ways. But certainly, like they they were fit, I mean they were big for a reason, and they're they're kind of still around now for a reason, which was again they're they're so entertaining. I mean, it's, you know, you can listen to you can if you, even if you don't care about their movie reviews, as you said, their stern appearances, their their Letterman appearances are hilarious. I mean, they were really fun. He started bringing them in for sketches at a certain point, which is like. They're movie critics, you know, they're coming in on a huge TV show doing comedy bits. Um, so they were just, I think if you're in your teens or early 20s and weren't around when they were on, it's kind of hard to fathom just how big they were. And they were on every week. You know, they had a weekly show, and it wasn't uh, 15, 20 million viewers, but it was it was a steady number of viewers every week. Yeah, and I, you know, I I think I was listening to the, I, I was able to hear part of the podcast, and I was listening to, you talk about how they they just explained movies in a way that you knew that they knew about movies in a way that you didn't, but they didn't yeah. make you feel lower for not knowing it. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, absolutely. Yeah, and they made me understand movies a little bit in a way I didn't before. It's almost like um, it kind of reminds me of you know a guy is a good color guy on a game when he can teach you a part of the game you didn't understand before, Joe Morgan was like this with baseball. He could teach me why it made sense to squeeze in that moment mm. without making me feel like I was didn't know baseball. You know, yeah. it was a different thing. It was like, yeah, you know baseball, but here, learn this extra part. Right. You know, and I feel like they were the, the movie version of that, that – the way Joe Morgan or even John Madden with his Telestrator could teach you more about football or baseball, but without making you feel less than these guys did it with movies. And yeah, and I think a lot of the yeah, I, I think you're right. I think a lot of the credit goes to um, you know the woman who created the shows, Thea Flom, and she when she started working with Siskel and Ebert in the in the 70s, she said, "Look, we can't make this, you know, The New Yorker on TV. It can't be." super highbrow. It can't, you've got to talk to people in their homes and make them feel like they're part of this conversation. And 
Cisco and Ebert got that note, and they and they really learned to do do that really well. But at the same time, I mean, I think I probably first heard the word cinematography watching Cisco and Ebert. You know, I think I started to make sense of, oh, directors, oh, you follow directors' career, like you can follow a director's movie from movie to you know from film to film, and start looking for ideas and patterns and. If that's a way. That's one way to categorize films is who directed it. I mean, all this really basic stuff. Um, when I was incredibly young, I, I definitely learned it through watching Siskel and Ebert, and I never felt like they were at all snooty. I mean, I think Gene could be aloof, and I think Roger could get, you know, could get grumpy about stuff, but I don't think they were ever snobby to one another or to the audience. You know, they had a. It, it, I don't think I don't think that would have been fun for them to do. I don't think I think they got a lot of pleasure out of talking about movies. I don't think they were looking to make themselves look smarter all the time. I think they knew they were smart. <laughs> I mean, I think they certainly had like really well developed egos, but I don't think um, I don't think they lorded that over viewers. And as you said, that's one reason why I just I felt like I learned so much, and there was an accessibility of that show that maybe you wouldn't get from you know when I was ten or twelve years old trying to read you know, a New York Times review or something. Sure. And, you know, you mentioned they could be aloof or grouchy, but I feel like when they were, you knew a relative around their age that was like that, that you loved or something. You know, like it was like endearing. Those qualities never became, they never felt negative. They felt endearing in some way. Like, oh, that's Roger being Roger, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. uh, And I think, you know, for me personally, my parents were both um, newspaper people. So I grew up, Going to, um, especially when my mom was a, was a freelance reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer, I would go to her office a lot on weekdays, like after school to whatever. And I really grew up going to newsrooms and grew up surrounded by newspaper people of Gene and Roger's generation. And they really, that was an, inc- you know, that whole generation, I think of them as incredibly educated and, like I said, incredibly sarcastic. And yeah, sometimes incredibly aloof. I mean, that was just sort of what it was like to be in a newspaper newsroom uh, in the you know 70s 80s and 90s. So oh yeah, I mean I have a lot of <laughs> a lot of relatives and people in my life that reminded me of um of Gene and Roger at times. And I, I that's you know that is my go-to mode for talking with people who are also writers like uh, I have a I have a very deep sense of sarcasm. <laughs> um but you know hopefully never I don't have a lot of um I don't think I have a lot of snobbiness about it, but yeah, I, and the way they volley and banter on the show—I mean, that's just like that's just that's just the way these kind of guys would be, you know, and, and in either in the newsroom or on the camera. And I, and you know, I—it's I, one reason why I do love, even when they do get aloof or kind of go at it. I'm like, oh, I know this. I know this energy. Yep. I recognize this in myself. You mentioned before. I mean, these guys were huge stars in pop culture, you know, yeah. and. I, I can't think of a contemporary. I'm sure maybe there is one. You know, I, I know Alan Steppenwall, you know, and I know mm-hmm. Feinberg and a few other guys who are T Greenwall, you know, guys who are T V guys. And I don't mm. and but I can't think of film guys on the same level. And I don't know if maybe that's because right now, you know, ever since maybe since Sopranos, you know, the the rise of the anti hero, you know, the the way the cultural revolution on television, the, you know, the way we got these 13 hour films now on TV, really. So, you know, like a season of Sopranos to me, it's always like a 13 hour film. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's why, I don't know if it's because like the theater going to it seems less important ever since we had these TVs, you know, I never, I never thought it was like streaming that made me go to the theater last. I thought it was my screen. 
You know, I have a this beautiful screen, I feel like, now. To watch. I don't know what yeah. it is, but for whatever reason, I don't know a movie critic that's on the level. I mean, forget the level of those guys, because that's, I mean, that's like that's like me coming out here saying, I don't know a basketball player is on the level of Michael Jordan. Like, that's just stupid. <laughs> like, those guys were those guys, but I don't know. Like, who are their contemporaries? Like, who are, who are the yeah, guys yeah. now? Where are they? are they? Are they there? Am I just missing them? I know that's possible. No, I mean, I think I think it's become like so much of media where I think people have their favorite film kind of critics or or people who or film commentators, and I think a lot of it is podcasts. You know, I think that people sort of go to different shows they like, whether it's a, a show about new movies, whether it's a show about older movies. What you know, there's a lot of bad movie shows, but I also think that like for movies, for better or worse, you know. Rotten Tomatoes has kind of become the sort of go-to, what are the critics saying? Sure. Um, in, in the way you used to have, you know, in the way in the 80s or 90s, people said, yeah, I worked at a video store in the 90s, so and sometimes you would really try to steer people toward movies that um, maybe they were, they thought they were, like, they were on the fence about, you know, if they were like, oh, what was this? I don't know. I never heard of it. And you'd be like, oh, no, Cisco Lieber gave it two thumbs up. That was a very powerful recommendation tool. Like, I could just say that to... A, you know, in a very suburban square kind of area, and people be like, oh, okay, I'll check it out then. And I think now that's why you see the Rotten Tomatoes, you know, if, if something gets a 95 or 96, or Rotten Tomatoes approved, that, that goes the in the TV ad. On the trailers, yeah, yeah, goes, yeah. Yeah, and I think, and, and, you know, I don't know whether that's because there is a different feeling about, I mean, movies are certainly a different cultural force than they were, you know, 20 years ago. Um, and that's a whole other thing, that, and that, that could be part of it. But I... I I also think it's very hard to for any critic to become as famous as Cisco Niebuhr because they had TV at a time when there wasn't <laughs> there wasn't an internet there weren't five million channels there there wasn't a whole lot of I mean I do think Gene and Roger were exceptionally good at what they did but even though they had um, you know sort of imitators who came in they didn't no one really ever commanded the audience that they did and they had a you know they had a huge following you know weekly syndicated show for decades is that's that that is like that really establishes a relationship with viewers, and I don't know who would have that now. There's there's a lot of movie critics I like and that I follow. I don't think any of them are on TV. They're all they're all on Twitter, you know, and or, or they're all on podcast. I was thinking yeah. of someone I I do really like is Tony Kornheiser has had her on for years from the Washington Post. I know her first name is Anne. For some reason, I can't think of her last name. Uh, you probably oh, is it Anne. Horn Day, I'm Hornaday, something like that. Yes, it's. So, yeah. I didn't want to say it wrong, but it's. I don't know. I don't. I would be happy to say it wrong too. But we're she's close. Great, yeah. yeah, she's really good and good on the air. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. her when her and Tony, uh, whether it was his ESPN radio show or now it's a podcast, whatever it was over the years, they're they they're very good at you know going back and forth on movies, you know, because Tony Kornheiser can be a lot like, uh, Ebert. In a way, you know, <laughs> um, but I like her. Yeah, I don't know. For whatever reason, it makes sense what you say about Rotten Tomatoes, because I hear from people all the time. Oh, this movie's so and so fresh, you know, where at first I was yeah. like, what are they talking about? Now I understand. But, <laughs> you know, it took me a little and, and, yeah, while to catch on and, to that. Yeah. And Rotten Tomatoes is both. I mean, I roll my eyes about a lot of it. I I sort of hate the whole, um, you know, this is I. I you know, when it comes to internet arguing, where people sort of, if people sort of argue about a movie and someone says, well, it got 97%, so you're wrong. It's like, well, that doesn't mean, you know, I hate that sort of, let me pull out a metric that proves an opinion. But I have to say, there are times where I'm looking at smaller movies, you know, indie, like really tiny indie films that 
I may be on the fence about, but then if I do see a, an exceptionally high Rotten Tomato score and I look and say, oh, Amy Nicholson liked this, or like other critics that I really like, I'm like, okay, I will, I will watch this then. You know, that does help me. It does lean. It does, it does help kind of inform my choices sometimes. Yeah, I like to use it as a tiebreaker. If I got two movies, <laughs> trying to decide which one to watch, sometimes I'll let that break the tie. Right. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you this. The show's going to come out July 20th. It'll be out by the time this goes up, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and people will be able to listen to the first episode. It's a series of episodes. Um, I'm sure you thought of this. At the end of the journey for the listener, what are you hoping they take away from it? What What do you want them to know, most importantly to you, about Siskel and Ebert? Oh, it's interesting. I mean, I think, I think for people who are in my generation who grew up with them, I I was I was really trying to build the show for two audiences. One is people who grew up with them, such as myself, and had an appreciation for them, but maybe hadn't jumped back in lately, or maybe hadn't realized the kind of influence it had on a lot of us as people who love popular culture and talk about popular culture. So that was one thing. I definitely wanted people to to sort of under who grew up with them to sort of understand them more. And I think also, you know, there's a great documentary that Steve James did several years ago about uh, based on Roger's really fantastic memoir called Life Itself. Um, and I think Roger is at this point better known than Gene among some people. Um, you know, and he said, he, like I said, he had this great memoir, he had this great Steve James movie. So I certainly wanted people to know Gene a little bit more. And I was really, really grateful. I spoke with, you know, I spoke with Gene's wife and, and his daughters and, and a lot of his friends. And I really, because I, I felt when I was starting this project, I realized I didn't know anywhere near as much about Gene, who was very private, um, as I did about Roger. And he so died I, I kind so, of to, so early, too, you know, like 99 is yeah decades ago now, you know? I don't know. It's, yeah, it's it's heartbreaking, and yeah. and I really and I was a huge Gene fan. I and I and this is this is strange. One thing I realized when I was working on it was I think Gene Siskel was the last celebrity whose whose death I learned about on TV, only because I can remember exactly where I was when I saw it on TV. Um, and this was sort of pre-internet, and and I was really affected by it. And weird, I was just I like I said I'd grown up with him. Um, and same with Rogers and Rogers' death. You know, I learned about on Twitter, which is kind of you know. Um, you know, shows a sort of shift in how people consumed information between the time Gene died and the time Roger passed. But um, so I really wanted people to definitely feel like they knew both Gene and Roger. But I, I wanted to make sure there was stuff in there about Gene and people got to learn about Gene. And I think the other people I was trying to make this for were for people who were just sort of watching Cisco Libre clips online and didn't really know who they were and didn't know kind of how important they were and how they shaped the way we talk so much and how we talk about sports on TV or, or politics and just this, this kind of big kind of influence they had outside of just talking about movies. Um, but mainly I really wanted people who love Cisco Niebuhr, like I really wanted to find the best clips I could. I mean, that, there's all there's like probably about 20 new interviews in it. I really tried to, I talked to as many as I could, but the real joy in doing a show like this, as you can guess, is, you know, finding an incredibly obscure, you know, like Cisco Niebuhr clip and just and just being like, oh, I can't wait to play this for people who are fans. You know, I mean, whether right. it's I'm talking about like Swamp the, Thing or Broken Arrow, yeah, or stuff like that. Opportunity Knocks review. Yeah, like yeah, like some <laughs> Opportunity Knocks. Oh yeah. my gosh, I saw that at opening weekend with my friend. We were like the only two people. In the <laughs> I love that movie for some reason. Why I, did you see that in the theater opening weekend? Well, because <laughs> we, no we were idea. probably a Dana Carvey fan, right? So you just had to be there. I was, yeah, but I don't know if I was like necessarily like I got to see every Dana Carvey <laughs> movie opening weekend. I have this. 
I have this theory about that movie that by the time it came out, there was a burnout to him and his character. Yeah. But if you like watch it now, it's better than you remember, I think. But maybe not. Maybe I just I, I have, maybe I'm I have just not a, revisited a long time. Maybe I'm just a special kind of mark for that movie. But I do like that movie. <laughs> What's its Rotten Tomato score? That will that will not be uh, when I decide to rewatch it. Or I not. bet it's in the 40s. If I had to get, <laughs> isn't that a game that Adam Carolla plays? See, but I feel like everyone is grading it based on their you know recollection of it in 1990 or whatever year it came out. You know, and, and well, that's the thing I hate when. Yeah, when people go into old Rotten Tomato scores for older pre-internet movies, it's like these movies weren't. You have to. You can't. You can't just pull what everyone was saying about a movie when it came out. How many movies were that we all love now or that we hate now were completely viewed differently at the time? You know. Yeah, and like I said, I think the context of what what drug that movie down at the time was that people didn't want to hear him do a George Bush impression again. You know, and then here we are in the movie, and he's doing a George Bush impression to get a con over in the bathroom. You know what I mean? So I think people walked away kind of rolling their eyes about that at the time. But I think, like, looking back, if you watch it without that fatigue now, because he actually is, was, is and was a really funny guy. Um, yeah, I love Carvey. I don't know why we're debating this film. Just this, like, oh, no, no, it's not even me. I'm, 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 I'm ready to go down a whole rabbit hole of 90s Carvey movies. <laughs> yeah, but, um, you know, I... I hope it. I hope it really. Because I was thinking about. I was talking. About, I have a brother who's eleven years younger than me, so he just turned thirty. And um, mm. I was talking to him about doing this interview and talking to him about the show and everything. And you know, I was like, think of it like PTI before PTI. I mean, it's two guys who they, they worked at different newspapers. I guess Kornheiser and Wilbur worked at the same, but and maybe they're a little bit better friends than Gene and. Um, and but I want to ask you about that in a second, the kind of friends or not friends thing. But um, I'm like, that's what it was. But for movies, you know, and I don't mm. think there would have been a PTI without it. Like, I bet when they started that show, one of the first things someone said was, let's do a Siskel and Ebert type show, but with sports stories for the day. I mean, that conversation had to have happened. Right. Yeah. I mean, I actually interviewed Eric Ridehome uh creator of PTI, and we talked about that quite a bit, and, and, and yeah, you're right, I mean, Siskel Ebert was a huge influence, and Eric Ridehome, who, who was a great interview, also, he just happened to grow up basically around the corner from Roger Ebert, so he was sort of a huge fan of these guys as newspaper critics first, and there's, I, I didn't get into as much as I wanted to, but I do get into the fact that there was a lot of Chicago pride about these two guys becoming big celebrities, because... One thing people forget is that you know now everything feels so kind of democratized, and you know when you talk about you can be you know you can be a, you can host a pop culture podcast from anywhere in the, in the world, you know. But when Cisco and Eber were taking off, people you know there was L.A., which is where the movie industry was, and New York, which is where people thought of the media industry as being. So the idea that these two guys from the Midwest were actually kind of you know like running the conversation uh, on right. movies in the, that's pretty remarkable. Um, and I think it also kept them sane. I think the fact that they never moved to L.A. or New York was the best thing to happen to Siskel Ebert. They never really got co-opted, I don't think, by by the showbiz. All right, so let me ask you this. I kind of hinted at it. So I told you I'm an 80s wrestling fan, right? <laughs> and so let's just let's – let's, since Siskel and Ebert are the big stars, let's use the big stars. So let's talk about Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage, right? Uh <laughs> I think what you've seen on screen in terms of wrestling very often mirrored 
what was going on behind the screen in terms of the relationship between those two guys. I think they were once friends, and then I think they weren't friends anymore. Mm. And I think that the relationship sometimes was really good, and then sometimes was really bad. And then now that one of them is gone, you just hope that before he passed, they're able to, um, you know, patch up and get closer to, mm. you know, and I guess that's true of them. What do you make of the relationship between the two guys? Because there's kind of this thing, oh, they didn't like each other. They were rivals. They tolerated each other because then there's this other thing like, no, that's a work. You know, they're just working you. Um, they're that smart. They're great friends. Whatever. What did you come out on the relationship between the two guys um, after you finished researching for this? Like, what do you think? I mean, obviously, there was a mutual professional respect. I don't mean that. I mean, like, what what was the relationship between these two guys, in your opinion? You know, it's, I mean, the thing is, the thing you have to remember is that they worked together for a quarter century. So, that no matter you know any relationship over a quarter century is going to change from where it begins for better you know either either way sure. and i do think when it started out it was it was frosty because this was a time when newspaper columnists and newspapers were extremely competitive i mean they you know they were the chicago sun times and the chicago tribune i mean i grew up in philadelphia i knew what those two papers were uh maybe it's cuz my parents <laughs> worked in newspapers but that was you yeah, know no i was, think were, i think i did too yeah i think i yeah, did yeah they were too. rivals yeah they were rivals. They had very different personalities. Um, you know, everyone I spoke to who worked with them and knew them said they were two people who probably would not hang out together if they weren't doing a TV show together. So that, and I do think you see that in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, and they, they keep arguing into the 90s. What I think changed is that they wound up going through this incredibly strange experience together of becoming superstars. And they became a team. And I think, you know... I don't know if there's a musical analogy for how uh, you know how a band forms over the year, but over the years. But I do think that the two of them were. You know, it's weird. One 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 thing that I reminded of was Cisco Niebuhr, and this is a very strange leap. Is that I think REM from the beginning had a contract that all four members would get songwriting credit on a song, no matter what, which is a huge deal because songwriting credits, you know, that's where money is made, is where publishing money right. is made. And it's it's a and I and I'm hoping I have this right with REM, but I believe they made this pact early on, and it was because they all wanted to make sure they were they had equal footing, and that way, you kind of can't sabotage each other, you know. Um, and Cisco Niebuhr from the beginning always had the same agent slash lawyer, and they did all these deals together, and they went and I think that it was a real unity to them that I think <clears throat> started off as maybe a, a business proposition, but I think by the '90s. Um, you know, once Gene had a family, once Roger got married, I, I don't think they were high five best pals, but I think they I think there was a real fondness and I think a, a real respect for them. Um, but the real answer to that question is that the I think the only two people who could ever truly explain Gene and Roger's relationship Gene Roger. is Gene and Roger. Right. And and both you know, I spoke to both Chaz Ebert and Marlene Goodson and they were great in giving their perspective on that. And I think that's as close as we're ever going to get. But there was something you know, you know, Roger was an only child. Gene grew up in, a, in Gene experienced some real loss in his family as, as when he was younger. Um, and I think they did kind of become. It sounds so cliche, but I do think there was something brotherly about them by the end, especially. You know, <laughs> I mean, I think it was a little more affectionately brotherly by the last ten years or so. But when you look at the '90s, and the show really does kind of track them through these three very different decades. 
by the nineties, they you know no, you know by the nineties, people weren't even talking about Siskel and Ebert arguing anymore because they'd become a much bigger force kind of together. Um, and and I think you know they were still thicker and stuff, and they would still they would still kind of throw devastating one-liners, but it's the kind of one-liners that I now throw to my friends who I've known for thirty years. You know, it's like I can talk to certain friends and say, "What are you talking? That's so stupid." You know what I mean? Like sure. you do have these certain people in your yeah. life that if you have a long relationship with, you can. Have a shorthand, and sometimes that shorthand is like, "What?" <laughs> you know? They kind of became brothers in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that I think that's sort of how it became, and I don't think anyone would have predicted that early on. You know? Well, the Spotify original series is called Gene and Roger, and it's from The Ringer and hosted by our guest today, who's awesome, Brian Raftery, and it will document the rise uh, with a focus on the cultural footprint they left behind. That's from Deadline. I read that. And it's gonna ex- it's gonna exist on the big picture feed. Is that right? Is that how you find it? Yeah, it's it? on the big picture feed. Yeah. So it'll be you know wherever you get your podcasts. So you want to look for the the big picture feed from the Ringer. We'll have we'll host the episodes. Um, you know, and then you can always just do what I do is just Google a podcast and then it comes up. And sure. You click on it. <laughs> and you can find more. You can find more information very easily on Brian's Twitter too. If you follow him, he's just at Brian and then R A. F T E R Y, um, and you you know within a within a scroll past a tweet or two of Tom Cruise and um, Nicole Kidman, and you'll you'll find uh, <laughs> you'll find some stuff. Brian, I'm gonna let you go in a second, but I spent a lot of time over the weekend just reading your stuff and uh, just wanting to get to know you a little bit more. And sure. I, I had remembered your book. Mm. You know, I kind of like I had remembered that that book came out. And I remember just basically the argument of it, like, and thinking about it in my head, you know, like, is 1999 the best year for movies? You know, and, and I remember, and actually I started dating my wife in 1999, and we have all of our movie tickets. And this weekend <laughs> I went back and I was, like, looking to see how many movies in the book oh, wow. we went to see at the theater, and it was a lot of them. Yeah. Um, but I really liked reading the book because it's just basically felt, it felt kind of like a, um, a really good Chuck Klosterman book. Um, you know, where it was just kind of like, it felt like a bunch of different essays about a bunch of different movies that I liked. And if there was mm. a movie I didn't like, I just kind of, or it, it, maybe this wouldn't happen, but because I'm kind of cramming for an interview, you know, it's like, ah, I don't want to read about, you know, this 1999 movie. I'll read about Office Space, you know, or I'll read about right, right. American Beauty or whatever. So I really, really enjoyed, enjoyed the book. And I wanted to at oh, least thanks. mention it because I'm sure people listening might want to buy it still. Um, oh, cool! Thanks. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was. Go ahead. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of fun. No, it was a lot of fun. And you know, the title is is best movie year ever, but it's best period movie period. You know, it's it's sure. it's supposed to be in that kind of argumentative internet way. Um, because I certainly think like 1939 was a pretty great year. 1969 was a pretty great 84 year. I, mean, is I was good. writing it. Yeah, 84 is good. What's that? 84 is a good one. Yeah, the 84. I mean, I was writing it during 2018, 2017, which was. Those two years, it was, you know, Get Out and Lady Bird and Call Me By Your Name and lots of great movies those years. But, yeah, I basically went back and I sort of, I did about 100, I talked to about 120 people who worked on those movies, like David Fincher and Steven Soderbergh and Sofia Coppola. So it's sort of, the idea is, even if you're skeptical of that title, you know, that these are the best movie, that is the best movie year. I do think that year is, the argument of the book is basically, you had a whole new generation of filmmakers. You had, you know, Kubrick's last movie. You had George Lucas's first movie in 20 years. You had all these different, um, 
generations kind of meeting in this one very really rich year that was also the end of a century where everyone thought the world was going to blow up. So it, right. it kind of made for this <laughs> interesting tension throughout the whole year. But thanks, that book was a, that book was a lot of fun to do. So yeah. Um, it's funny to hear that now because I, I was just too young. I never once thought the world was going to blow up. You know, I was 19 years old, I guess. I was just too naive to <laughs> to believe that that was I mean, a threat. I remember it. I was it. nervous about it, but I, I spent 1999 in Times Square in, in New York City, and it was like, well, if it is going to blow up, like at least this will be interesting to see because it will definitely happen here. Like Times Square definitely felt like this is where someone would, you know, this is where the aliens would land. You know? Well, my thought was like, even if God had this plan, it's like once he heard that Prince song, like he wasn't going to end, <laughs> he wasn't going to end the world on the night that everyone finally had to pay that song off, you know, and actually, <laughs> right. you know, party like it was 1999. Uh, so do you, what do you trust more? The tomato meter or the audience score? Just to tie up a loose end here. What do you, what's your go-to? Um, Oh boy, you know I I I only have trust either one, but I I, I and I only really use it for if it's like a small because I do I still see tons of movies. There's a lot of movies that I'm just going to go see no matter what. Sure. So they very rarely kind of steer, but it's like if it's a really tiny indie and I see the tomato score, the critic score is 90 or above. I think, oh yeah, I'm going to watch this. Like if, if it's gotten that many good reviews and I haven't heard of it or I've barely heard of it, then I then I'm instantly kind of interested. Like oh. This is a festival movie that has got really good buzz, but didn't get a big release. Because I still, I just spent the last week actually catching up on like smaller 2021 movies, and I've like watched a bunch of really good ones. And I was, you know, those were not because of Tomato Meter, but those are kind of movies that I look for now. Because all the big movies, I'm going to go see no matter what. Right. One thing I look for on there is a movie that has a really high audience score and a really low critic score, especially <laughs> especially if the reason for the critics low scores is politics because i know that i'm not there's just no chance i'm going to be as offended by the movie's politics as the reviewers are you know is what there I mean? an example of that? i'm trying to think of a movie that's had that um well i'm trying to think what was the movie that was on netflix the ron howard movie recently um, oh hillbilly elegy yep that's a great example of it um in terms of this disparaged yeah, disparity yeah, yeah. in the score and i certainly wasn't offended by the politics of the movie i didn't think it was like the greatest movie or anything um but i didn't think it was anywhere near as bad as the critics thought and again it, my theory proved true they the critics didn't like it because of the politics of the movie which it seemed like the filmmaker didn't intend anyway um mm. at least from his comments about it after and um like i i've just learned i'm not anywhere near as liberal as film as film critics um, I'm not, I'm not like, you know, Alex Jones or anything, but like, you know, I'm just not, um, so I look for that. Um, all right here, this is a uh, second into that. Let's have fun. Give me what you think the tomato meter is for opportunity knocks. And I'll tell you that there is a pretty wide discrepancy between the critics and the fans. All right, let me see. I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna guess the critical reviews were pretty bad. I mean, it was Dana Carvey. People, you're on the right yeah. track. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna guess it was. I'm gonna guess 29. Okay, that's that's generous. For, it was 13. Wow. 13. Okay. Now the audience, really? the audience score is much better. What do you? What do you? What's your prediction there? I'm gonna say 68. percent Okay, again, you're generous. It was 47. All right. But. But again, and I this my theory about this movie. I don't know why I become the opportunity knock salesman today on this. 
My theory, <laughs> my theory is these scores are based on the 1990 fatigue of the main actor in the movie. Yes, I think so. The, the weird thing is, the funny thing is, when you mentioned that George W. Bush thing, it triggered this memory, which is, I think they had him do, like, uh, commercials. I remember commercials, they were playing up the George W. Bush scene like crazy. Like, I think, I think it was like they were really marketing it with it, which is a weird thing to be like, yeah, come to the pay, pay $8 to see the impression you can watch on Saturday Live for free. Right. Every Saturday. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, I think that's what it was. Like, everyone was kind of done with that. You know what I mean? Like... Because Saturday Night Live, it's a good era for it. I think I like the I like I became a Carvey fan watching that stuff, staying up too late. Oh yeah, I mean when I was talking, yeah, you know, when I was talking earlier about like coming home on Sundays and watching SNL and Siskel and Ebert. I mean, I know I did it in the late '80s a lot too, but I think I enjoyed it. I mean, once Mike Myers and Carvey. I mean, you know, I remember just you know Wayne's World just was absolutely you know I lived for, <laughs> I lived yeah. for that Wayne's World Church Lady night. pump you up those yeah. guys. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of my favorite in-movie memories, and this is a huge stage, but like seeing Wayne's World on Friday night and like half my high school class was there and there's a scene where they show the Clapper commercial for Clap On, Clap Off, and the entire audience clapped <laughs> for that. Yeah, I remember, which, which my, my uh, theater experience I remember for that is how crazy everyone went for the Queen song. You know, like even oh, yeah, in the yeah. moment, just like everyone loved that. When they started, when, they, when it picked up and everyone in the car started headbanging, like, the theater mm-hmm. I was at went nuts for that. You know? Well, I mean, to, to, to tie this all up, I will say, Cisco yeah. and Ebert's review of, I think some people think that Cisco and Ebert were too tough on 90s comedies, <clears throat> and they could be. I mean, like, Roger loved Dumb and Dumber, but couldn't bring himself to give it a full thumbs up, which is sort of tortured, and I think he regretted that. But they both, not surprisingly, because they were in the Midwest, they loved Wayne's World. And I would say, if you want to watch two Cisco and Ebert reviews where they're clearly just in love with how much they love a comedy... It's Wayne's World and Clueless, both of which they really dug. And, um, I mean, Gene in particular seemed to really just get a huge kick out of Wayne's World. Um, here's, and, uh, here's, you know. here's Roger on, on Wayne's World real quickly. I walked into Wayne's World expecting a lot of dumb, vulgar comedy, and I got plenty, but I also found what I didn't expect, a genuinely amusing, sometimes even intelligent undercurrent. Like the Bill and Ted movies, this one works on an intended level and then sneaks in excursions to some other levels too so that's good yeah Yeah. no it's they look they they i do think they were honest and a lot of times you will see reviews where they say i walked in expecting this and i was pleasantly surprised or i was completely disappointed (laughs) well this we'll save cheers for next time because if we get on cheers we'll go along uh it's, (laughs) it's it's at brian raftery his name brian like you'd expect r-a-f T-E-R-Y, and the podcast is called Gene and Roger, and it's on the Big Picture feed, wherever you find podcasts. Um, And I've heard just a snippet, but I can't wait to hear every second. And Brian, I'm so glad that you agreed to come on and um, allow me to just get to know your work a little bit better and speak with you. I really appreciate it. Um, But before I let you go, do you have any any questions for me? I got to be fair. Do you have any questions for me? <laughs> Are you okay? I actually, I have. I was. I, I wanted to know what you thought of Trapped in Paradise, the other Carvey's <laughs> other uh, mid nineties. I will say, it, my dad and I went to see it in the theater. Oh uh, my god! <laughs> yeah, I remember. He liked it more than I did, um, but I liked it. I don't think I've seen it since the theater. 
I got to go back to it, huh? I, I I worked like I said I worked at Venus for the '90s, and so I was kind of obsessed with Nicolas Cage. What he called his uh, Sunshine trilogy, which was like three happy movies he was trying to make intentionally, and it was the one where he it was guarding Tess, trapped in paradise, and uh, it could happen to you. And I feel like why do I know those three facts? Like why can't, I can't name certain cabinet <laughs> members, but I can right, tell you the names right, right. of these three movies that <laughs> Nicolas Cage made, but. They were all, uh, yeah, they all blend together in one big, mediocre 90s studio movie for me. And I can barely, I remember, I saw Trapped in Paradise. I could not remember anything about it except the box cover. Yes, with the hats and I feel like maybe yeah, there like was a, a snow snowball or something. Some and, snow yeah, or, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> all right. You, you're where I am with the memory of it. But no, <laughs> I, I really appreciate this. I had fun, too. This is fun, Steve. Thanks so much for having me. This is, this is a really great chat. All right. I definitely want to get you back uh, at some point. All right, cool. Do. Yeah, whenever you want. I want to thank Brian Raftery for being on the podcast today and of course Kenny Albert don't forget you can find this episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters podcast on my SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters you can also find me on Twitter at sports underscore casters or email me the sportscasters at gmail.com if you feel I deserve it I'd always appreciate a five-star review and rating on Apple especially. I know they use that. It helps with the algorithms. I don't ask for much or often. Uh, but if you can take some time to do that. We really don't have as many reviews as we should for as long as we've been a podcast. And that's mostly my fault because I don't ask for them. Um, so please, if you can do that. Don't forget to check out Greetings from Allentown. Uh, my favorite wrestling podcast of all time uh, with Peter Winson. It's at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter for information about that because he's doing it every other week now. So I think this week is an off week. Uh, last week, I know he did a show from 84. Uh, but one thing he is still doing weekly, that's Greetings from Allentown Live with Keithy. And, you know, they started that going through all of the best of volumes from Coliseum Home Video. And then when they got through that, they started doing some other Coliseum Home videos. Then they were doing Goodfellas. Then they're doing Karate Kid 2. And now they're just bouncing around and just having fun. And they both enjoy doing it. And I enjoy listening to them doing it. And you can too. Uh, it's all at the same spot, the Greetings from Allentown feed. But for more information on all that stuff, it's at GF Allentown Pod uh, on Twitter. Uh, also, I wanted to mention... Uh, there is a an Instagram account called Rush Fans, uh, and I believe they're at Rush Fans. And then they also have a YouTube page that you can find if you search Rush Fans. And on the YouTube page, they have a series called Rush Roots, where Rush fans talk about their Rush Roots, how they became fans of the band Rush. And I am going to be featured on an upcoming episode of Rush Fans. So I'd love if you... Check that out. It's going to be coming out in the next week or two. I don't know exactly when. Uh, but the best way to find it is to follow at Rush Fans on Instagram. 
and then maybe subscribe to their YouTube page if you do that. We're going to talk more about YouTube in a minute. Uh, but if you could do that, that'd be great. And then uh, you'll be able to hear my rush roots. It's about 12 minutes long. I think I got some fun stories in. Hopefully a laugh or two. And maybe we'll get some new listeners uh, to this podcast and the 24-inch podcast. Which, of course, you can find at the number two, the number four, and the word inch, and the word podcast on Twitter. Or you can email us, 24inchpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and you can also check us out on Facebook by searching 24-inch podcast and joining our group page there. We've been on a little bit of a summer break, but we got a great schedule uh, planned out from now until September. So what we're going to do is uh, this week, we're going to have a new episode about the 96 Bash at the Beach when Hulk Hogan turned heel. Uh, Then we're going to do one the following week. So we're going to do two more in July to kind of make up for the break we've been on. And we're going to do Rick Rude as the opponent for Hulk at the Boston Garden, a house show back in 1988, because we've never done a Boston Garden house show or Rick Rude yet, so we're looking forward to that. And then the month of August is going to be all about SummerSlam. We're going to do SummerSlam 88 and SummerSlam 91, of course, 91 being uh, an anniversary year for that. So I'm looking forward to this summer of the uh, the rest of the summer of the 24-inch podcast Myself and Hollywood Dave Rollins uh, do that podcast. So with all that said, it's time uh, for one last thing from me today. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about YouTube because my daughter uh, recently graduated from pre-K. And they made a little video for us. And all the kids who graduated, there was like 10 of them. Uh, Let's say there was 10. They sang songs, and they said, Hi, my name is Paula Bennett, and I'm graduating from pre-K, and when I grow up, I want to be a YouTuber. That's what my daughter said. And eight of the ten kids said YouTuber. One said police officer, and one said superhero. Now, it used to be when you would ask kids that, eight out of ten would say athlete. Right, a rock star, or fireman, or police officer, or astronaut. But now it's YouTuber. They all want to be YouTubers. And my daughter loves YouTube. She could watch YouTube all day, every day, if we let her. We have to literally step in and say, Paula, okay, enough YouTube. Right? So I always think of this advice I heard before. You know, someone said, I don't even know where I heard this advice or who was giving it, but I know it was good. So I've always kept it with me. And it was stay current, you know, stay as current as you can with things like technology and culture and media and sports. And I try to live by that. Now, I know music is gone, right? I'm never going to be current in music ever again because I don't enjoy the music that's current. So I've I, I've, I've taken that. I've accepted that. You know, I stay very current in news and sports and politics. I'm good there. And I try to stay really current with technology. You know, I try to stay above the curve as best as I can. I don't want to get left behind. I, I enjoy technology. I've always enjoyed technology. 
You know, I was the kid back in the 80s who knew how to hook up the VCR or hook up the Nintendo or find football games on the satellite dish or whatever. I was drawn to tech. And I love Apple products. Not as much as maybe I did in 2010, uh, but I'm so deep into the ecosystem of Apple, I could never imagine changing, right? I have an iPhone. I have two iPads. I have an a laptop, I have, you know, uh, the HomePod, I have Apple ecosystem up the wazoo. So I couldn't imagine bailing out of it. We actually have one thing in the house that's Alexa. And I, I just, I don't, I can't stand it, but it's an area where I'm, I'm pretty good at staying current tech doing the best I can. Now, I realized I had a vulnerability, and it was YouTube. I didn't understand why all these kids wanted to be YouTubers, and I didn't know, really understand or know what the hell they're watching. And not just five-year-olds like my daughter, but I wanted to figure out what is it that draws people to YouTube? Why do people make so much money on YouTube? What is on these channels? And I've really spent the last few months trying to learn who people like Mr. Beast are. You know, what is Mr. Beast? What is that channel? Is it real? How does it work? How can he give so much stuff away? What are the economics of it? You know, I'm trying to learn about people like Danny Duncan. Um, MK... BHD, the best tech YouTuber, maybe my favorite YouTuber out there who makes unbelievable videos about technology and speaks so eloquently and fluidly about about you about uh, technology. And then there's all these great channels, uh, people reviewing music, uh, Twins is the New Trend, uh, reacting to Phil Collins' videos. I've really tried to take some time to use YouTube for something other than watching Tracy Porter intercept Peyton Manning in Super Bowl 44. Now, it's still great for that. And uh, other sports highlights and music videos. But, you know, I wanted to learn more about the channels. And I've done my best. And I like some stuff. You know, some I, I like Mr. Beast. But I feel like if you've seen five Mr. Beast videos you kind of seen all of them you know it, it doesn't have the, the replayability for me that maybe some do uh danny duncan he's gonna kill himself he's an insane human being but i understand the appeal there especially to younger people you know um some of the stuff my daughter watches i mean oh my goodness adley and her family i don't know if anyone has been down this rabbit hole but not for me the things that she watches on YouTube, my goodness, I could bang my head. A friend I went to in college named Kevin has Vsauce 2. And there's Vsauce, Vsauce 2, and Vsauce 3. These are kind of science videos aimed at probably high schoolish aged kids, maybe a little younger. And he's done great with that. He was actually on this show to talk about it four or five years ago, something like that. I want to get Kevin back uh, to talk more about YouTube. Uh, but I'm fascinated by YouTube, and I'd love to know what you guys know about YouTube. What are your favorite channels? Um, 
What do you subscribe to? I've tried to increase uh, my channel subscriptions uh, over the last little bit on YouTube. I've been uh, subscribing to more, trying to, you know, watch more videos. Like I said, trying to understand why every kid in pre-K uh, right now wants to uh, be a YouTuber. And I found some cool political uh, YouTube channels uh, that I like as a conservative. I've sound, I found some good tech ones. I like John Stossel's channel. I think he makes some slick videos on there. Um, I like to check that out. Like I mentioned um, uh, Marquez Brownlee, who has a great channel. Um, I'd love to have him on the show. I've reached out, haven't heard back. Uh, like I said, I tried Mr. Beast. It's cool, and there's some great stuff on there, but it felt really repetitive to me. Uh, if you like music and want to learn more about music, Rick Beto, I think it's Beto, B-E-A-T-O is a great channel. Um, a lot of clickbait titles, but good videos if you can get past that. Um, I enjoyed that. There's a new one. I'm trying to find that I subscribed to the other day, a music one that I really liked the uh, the content on there. Uh, but of course, as we're with the pressure on here, I'm not going to be able to find. Oh, Cassidy Campbell. Uh, some of his stuff was funny. Um, he's got some characters he does and he goes out. There's a lot of pranks and things like that. A lot of reaction videos. I mentioned Twins is the new trend. Is a good one for there. Those guys got went, went viral. They're a couple kids from Indiana. They went viral for being blown away by the drum roll in In the Air Tonight. That kind of blew their minds. They weren't ready for that. There's great Howard Stern content on here. My God, do I love uh, all the Howard Stern stuff that I found on here. Uh, the Vintage... The Vintage... What's this channel? Let me see the full name of it. The Vintage Tribute by Peo. Uh, if you just search the Vintage Tribute, they have some really great uh, videos on there that are basically like clip packages of, you know, uh, different 80s stuff or 90s or whatever the theme is. Uh, there is a tech channel that I like from a young kid uh, who is building it up. He's mostly Apple. His name is Jared Ramirez. He's got a really good channel, uh, really good videos. Dude loves to just buy a new computer so that he can unbox it, you know, and I respect that. I think that's really cool. I mentioned Rush fans. I'm going to be on that channel. They got some great material on Rush if you're a fan of Rush. So look at, I know I'm late to the party here, um, uh, but I had kind of an awakening. Uh, my daughter's graduation when eight of the ten kids wanted to be youtubers so i'm trying to be more current uh with youtube reach out at sports underscore casters the sportscasters at gmail.com tell me what you watch on youtube uh, what channels do i have to check out who do i have to learn about what am i missing on youtube i'm trying to enjoy it more in my never-ending quest to stay current i want to thank kenny albert for being on the podcast tonight i want to thank uh, Brian Raftery for making his debut. Don't forget to check out uh, his podcast on Siskel and Ebert on The Ringer. That's available today as well. Uh, check him out. We're going to be back next time with Lee Montville making his debut. One of the all-time greats. 
and I appreciate everyone as I always.